0: Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money show, and as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game-changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using NIDIG, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out NIDIG as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Welcome back to the What is Money show. I'm sitting down today with the author of Layered Money, Nick Batia nick welcome to the show
1: great to be here robert how are you brother
0: so good man and it's so good to have you here and i just gotta say to start out the book is a masterpiece um i was telling you before the show like i often communicate to people that fiat currency is a pyramid scheme and i think your book brilliantly dives into the intricacies of that scheme how it evolved um you know, it's not. That sounds like maybe it's a conspiracy theory of some kind. But this thing really does evolve organically over time, and your book just flushes out the history beautifully. Um, so, thank you for writing it. It's my new number one recommendation for people to get to dive into this, and then to ultimately understand how Bitcoin is its own pyramid, as you describe. It's its own brand new conception of money, a first principles disruption of money. So, thank you for writing it. It's really good.
1: Thank you. I'm honored. Very kind words.
0: (laughs) Um, So I thought we'd just kind of start walking through it. Um, I read it in two days. I mean, I couldn't put it down, frankly. It was just, it was really good. Um, And your book starts out in talking about gold, which is still kind of the number one monetary asset in the world today. Uh, or I guess, base layer monetary asset um and there's this it opens with this great quote which i really like from cortez he said quote i and my companions suffer from a disease of the heart which can only be cured with gold so money clearly emerges based on individual pursuit of self-interest and the market just kind of zeroes in on this asset that serves as the most marketable good but that's not the end of the story, right? That's the kind of the beginning of money's story. And then it starts to evolve in these different layers to satisfy these different functions. Um, so maybe we could just start there. We just start at the beginning and, you know, let's kind of the namesake of the show. What is money?
1: Yeah. Layered money. It, the idea came from the concept that we use different forms of money for different things, right? I think that that is now widely understood. We have, you know we use our checking account we use venmo paypal um, you know we use cash there are so many different types of money then you introduce financial instruments so money market funds um and i worked in the bond industry for several years and so you see the impact that u.s treasuries have mm-hmm. in the whole uh, idea of money they're really more money than in, than an investment um, in a lot of parts of the U.S. treasury sector. Mm-hmm. So with all of those different forms of money, now we have Bitcoin, a brand new type of money. How do you properly contextualize Bitcoin in the current dollar system? Because the two are uh, you know, independent of each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when I explored how to do that, I landed upon money hierarchy as the core uh, framework that I needed to build upon, because you know you know that Bitcoin is when you study Bitcoin, you know that it is an independent asset from anything else. It originates because of the computing network that you know it, the nodes, mining and otherwise. The nodes are where the network is, and so it doesn't come from a balance sheet. It doesn't come from the Earth's crust, and so Bitcoin is independent. But the current financial system is greatly hierarchical, and then you see Bitcoin deposits at exchanges, and it's the same thing. It's a money hierarchy all Mm. over again. And that is what led me to Layered Money, and I you know, have to mention right away that the paper that kind of changed the game and set this whole thing in, in motion was The Inherent Hierarchy of Money by Perry Merling. He's an economics professor, um, and actually, you were there the night that I gave the first talk about the hierarchy of Bitcoin in L.A., in November or December of 2019, and that was the foundation of Layered Money, where I, where I had just read that paper for the first time and understood that Bitcoin needed to be explained <clears throat> with the backdrop of money hierarchy. Mm. And then I said, well, the, the paper was just a framework. I said, now we have to tell the entire history of the hierarchy of money. And then explain Bitcoin, and then explain why Bitcoin will atop the hierarchy of money in the future.
0: Right. I remember that event. That was a Lightning Network meeting, I think.
1: Yes, it was. Um,
0: and I remember you describing the, the hierarchy of money, and I think at the time, okay, I I, we were yeah, we were just debating about the hierarchy a little bit, like what would it look like. I, I remember that.
1: That's Um, right. We were, yeah, we were debating about um, the relationship between Bitcoin and Lightning in a hierarchy standpoint. Is it the same layer? Is it a different layer? You know, we know that it's a layer two solution in Bitcoin from the protocol standpoint. Lightning Mm -hmm. Network is its own protocol and, um, you know, quite uh, quite strictly a layer two of Bitcoin. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but when you talk about it in the form of money, you know, if Bitcoin is the first layer of money, is Lightning Network really a second layer of money? It can be argued that it's not. And that was the debate we were having, you know, that night, uh, was, yeah. you know, more of a nuanced one.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So I love your <clears throat> your book really. for I mean, you can come into this book with, I think, basically zero knowledge of finance, money, anything. And it builds from first principles very solid foundation very understandable language but then you build into a very complex domain i mean by the middle of the book you're reading about the euro dollar system forgot you know that's one of the most complicated (laughs) systems in the world um and so you start you know in the first paragraph i'll just read a quote here it says money is a tool that allowed us to progress away from reciprocal altruism Wherein animals swap favors, like when monkeys groom each other. I mean, it really is that. It's just a tool for swapping favors, right? That's the core of economics. But it gets really complicated when we try to figure out which tool best serves that purpose, because there's there tends to be a lot of trust involved and a lot of potentially broken trust in the form of corruption and, and other things. So Mankind tries to zero in on this tool that's, you know, corruption resistant or tool plus hierarchy that's corruption resistant over time. Um, and we've tried a lot of different things, but today we have a system that has scaled, right? It encompasses the world. But as you get into later in the book, it's really starting to show its age at the same time.
1: Very much uh, the the age the age analogy it fits perfectly with my bandage analogy because you there are bandages all over this pyramid now and the Fed has applied them and the wounds are open wounds right mm-hmm. and so they bleed out and then they have to you know apply more bandages and so that you know. That comes with age, right? And that's yep. it's a, it's a great way to frame it because it really is due to age. Um, you know, one of the analogies, um, I'm, you know, is the is the breaking a part of the facade of the pyramid also? When buildings break, it's because of age, yeah, right, or poor or poor construction technique or mm-hmm. both, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, it it definitely it definitely is, you know, showing that, showing that age.
0: So where did, we, where did this all start then? So, and we've talked about coin, coinage originating in Lydia, maybe we could just start there. Like what, what was the, what was the point? Why did we, how did we get to the metals and then why did we start issuing coins in the first place?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenges for writing this book was when to start the story. Mm-hmm. Um, Because you can start – you can do the Sapiens dive. You can do the Origins of Money by Nick Sabo dive, Mm -hmm. which are both great human anthropological deep dives that I believe you need to do to fully get money, right? I'm sure – that you would agree there that like you need, you need human anthropology first to, you know, under to get, you know, later in, uh, you know, in a very sapiens type of way. Uh, And so my goal with layered money was, you know, where do I need, where do I start the story? And I decided to start it in the year 1252 in Florence. When I decided that, I knew I had to fast forward from 100,000 years to 1252 AD in a few pages. So that was a challenge, right? And so how do I sum up the origins of money in a sentence? That's the reciprocal altruism sentence, right? Mm. You want to understand more about reciprocal altruism, go and read Nick Sabo's Origins of Money. It's footnoted in the book yep. uh, you know, for people and bring them up to speed. But basically that swapping favors and we need a tool for that is the reason why a tokenized form of money works because then you and I can hand it to each other and just think of that as, as the value storage of the favor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I owe you one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here, yeah. you know, here's the thing. So I owe you is a credit system today but you know tokens themselves can be an iou if the token is just a shell it's just something you pick up at the beach right it's not necessarily um a credit instrument or not right it's just a form of money and so i fast forwarded all the way to the consensus that was gold and silver you know mm-hmm. gold and then to a lesser degree silver but really both of these metals throughout history when you when you study it both of these metals the reason that human beings holistically set it on settled on the two of them was that they maintained value across tribes across oceans and across generations nothing else could do all of those things right uh, over a long enough time horizon so it's easy then for me to summarize that really quickly also because you can just say that listen nothing else held the value across continents and generations that these two metals did human beings decided on these two things as the best forms of that tokenized money Mm -hmm. right then you can get into the problems within using gold and silver the metals as money one obvious one you know is that my gold jewelry and your gold jewelry don't resemble each other I don't know how pure yours is how you don't know how pure mine is and so to gauge how much value you have and I have you know in a in a business transaction where every um, you know, in this, in this case, every gram counts, mm-hmm. right? Um, we need a better way to do that than my gold chain and your gold chain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And coins offered – And advance on that front, the measurability and the execution of a transaction, the speed of a transaction, money velocity, which is something Mm -hmm. that, you know, we talk about in the book. Money velocity is a very modern measurement of, you know, um, the speed that currency moves through the system today, but it can also be a, you know, um, a philosophical concept. The velocity of money is philosophical. It's theoretical in that, like, how quickly are you and I willing to move money around mm-hmm. because of how, how we view the thing that we're moving?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if it's, some, if it's some ancestral gold chain, philosophically and, you know, thematically, you're unwilling to part ways with that. Right. Coins change the game there. So, coins, uh, you know, are an advance in the velocity of money, in the way that we're willing to move it. And um, that's where Lydia comes into play. Mm-hmm. So, that's, uh, you know, about seven centuries BC. But, um, again, you, you want to fast forward through the coin stuff as well because coins are just another form of shells. Mm-hmm. It's not a pyramid. It's not a hierarchy. It's still a token money, right. and that's fine. That was the natural evolution from shells to gold coins. Makes sense. It should make sense if you have that. If you have that historical background, and so uh, you know that's why I uh, and you know we can talk about coins before uh, the florin for sure because I spend a chapter on that. But mm-hmm. you know i i did want to move as quickly as i could so we can get into a, a layered money system right. not just a, a coin
0: right the hierarchical money yeah and so my read on that is we basically discovered gold and silver as satisfying the properties desired in this token of reciprocal altruism Right. It was just literally experimentation over generations settled on this gold and silver. And then core
1: generations and across,
0: yeah, tri- you know, right, tribes right. and cultures. That's right. Yeah. So lots of generations and lots of different places. And then as these networks become interconnected by trade, because there were many examples where, you know, gold would outcompete the seashells or, or whatever. People are always coalescing to the, you know, the hardest money, more or less. And then coinage was, the way I think about this is it's, we we standardized essentially, right? So once you standardize a monetary unit, it's much easier to spend, as to your point, it's faster, easier, cheaper. Transaction costs collapse, so velocity of money increases, trade flourishes, wealth and innovation come right behind it. Um, I thought that was really beautifully put. And then when I guess you get into Maybe we could just fast forward a bit then. And the hierarchy of money comes into existence once there are layers of trust being introduced effectively, because when you're just exchanging coins, you're basically settling with finality. Once someone hands you that coin, you don't need to worry about them anymore. You don't need to trust that individual. They've settled with you, right? You've given them fish. They've given you coins, whatever it may be. But that doesn't work in a world where money, you know, it it restricts the velocity of money effectively. So we get into these other forms of money that are hierarchical, but introduce the need to trust the individuals and institutions within that hierarchy. So where do you take it then from gold and silver?
1: So the coins don't require the same trust that a credit money requires but it still does require trust and that's kind of the nuance here is that you still have to trust that the face on the coin which is going to be the regent Mm -hmm. or or whatnot that leader or that government has not already bastardized the coin Mm -hmm. that um, they have produced a coin that is hard enough to counterfeit that we won't see duplicates in the system. So there's all these nuances to that, fa- you know, this idea that trust is not involved with coins. Well, it is in a way, right, but not in the same way that uh, a strictly IOU, right? It's still right. a bare asset and and you can measure and test the coin on the spot if you need to. So then you can eliminate, you know, 99% of that trust or let's say the, the you know, counterfeiting um, problem that you mm-hmm. face potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, you know, gold coins were the basis for a layered money system because they were easily... Assayed, right, and, and so it still takes equipment, you know, to measure and test the purity of gold. But even that is, uh, you know, a readily available technology that makes gold coins perfect base money that you can use it for final settlement. But in the interim, we can move quickly by saying me saying I owe you and you saying you owe me. And what I found fascinating in the research of layered money was that it was layered money didn't start with gold certificates circulating, Mm -hmm. right? It actually just started with banking networks, meeting at fairs and having their own books. So I have credit and debit and you have credit and debit. And we just cross off each other like uh, when we meet we balance the books by you balance in yours and I balance in mine. So a double entry system or two hmm. ledgers, you don't ever have to even see mine. I don't have ever have to see yours. But as long as our numbers tie, we're okay with paring it down and, or, you know, or rolling over the debt or, yeah. you know, striking it and all that. That was fascinating to me that it, d- it didn't even require a paper instrument to move the layered money system forward, all that was required was, you know, bankers, the Medici, others saying, um, this is what you owe me then, and, um, and then meeting then and settling up or rolling it forward. And uh, the settlement tool was these you know coins like florin but other coins as well gold coins silver coins that was definitely always the final settlement but uh in the interim just roll it over on your books and my books
0: yeah just this system of net settlement um reminds me of we used to play this game called chinese poker in las vegas (laughs) i don't know if you ever played but you're constantly Uh, you just keep a running tab, basically, you know, you'll play for a few minutes or a few hours and you'll be like, all right, you owe me this, you owe me that. And then you just settle once every month or whatever. Um, And it really is that again, it's just trading favors. That's all really money is intended to be, but there's this trade-off right between trust, I guess, and scaling. Like if you minimize trust, that you're just settling with physical gold every time or whatever it may be, that would be very trust minimized. You don't need to trust the other guy, the other counterparty. But that's very slow, cumbersome, and efficient. So if you want to scale the actual transactional system, you need to introduce these layers of trust, which is what gets you into the hierarchical money. And that's a fundamental trade-off, right? We even see that in Bitcoin today. That to scale Bitcoin transactionally, you give up a little bit of that trust minimization by trusting something like the Lightning Network. You know, there's different trust factors involved there versus settling on the base layer. Um, But it's necessary to move from trust minimized money to, I guess, scalable money.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the only reason that, uh, and I do believe this, the only reason that we grow economies is by you know, having this trust system where we right. can move things quicker um, so that we can get things done quicker right. as a species. And so uh, there's a balance there. And Bitcoin brings pa- empowerment to people because it lets them bring the settlement back to themselves in a few minutes at, um, you know, a very non-material fee, Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, you want to complain about $5. Okay. We're talking about the ultimate form of property rights that mankind has ever known. Mm -hmm. So what are you talking about, uh, with a complaint about $5? It misses the point that money scales in layers and we use other layers to move it quicker. But you pay five dollars to settle your life. Yeah, uh, that's I mean it's a it's a foregone conclusion.
0: Yeah, you're sending you know gold around the world for for five bucks effectively. Um, right. Which you you can't you can't just compare that to Venmo. You have to compare that to the container ship of gold. Right. You have to send.
1: So this and, is you know yeah, and Lightning Network. Just to bring this back, Lightning Network is. Definitely one of the original things that just captured my imagination about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So I entered the Bitcoin arena during the SegWit uh, proposal phase. So I was like, you know, everybody was talking about SegWit. So I, you know, what is SegWit? Why is it so important? Oh, it's a lightning network. And it's like, wow, Bitcoin has solved the scaling problem. Yeah, it has to roll it out. You know, this was pre-SegWit, so pre-lightning and... Uh, you know, but it 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 showed me that you you've you've solved the scaling problem already. So mm. um, Bitcoin becomes uh, a no, br- it becomes a no brainer for a financial system away from digital gold like uh, like that.
0: Yeah, 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 and y- yeah. We'll get deeper into that later in the book. But I remember that's. I mean, that's how I discovered your work. Frankly, you're writing about um, time value of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. And it is it's very unique because you know, I said there's this trade-off to you know of less trust minimization for more scaling, but lightning network is fundamentally different too, in that it is a trust as trust minimized of a scaling solution as you could possibly have. You're trusting smart contracts instead of people, um, which is really interesting. So the, I guess the crux of the issue here, as your as your book explains it, is this difference between. Deferred settlement and final settlement, right? Like have the books been closed between two parties or not? If not, then there's trust involved and there's some hierarchical system to support that. If they have, then there's like a transaction cost with that and there's less trust involved. So I mean, that's what drives the evolution of these money hierarchies. Is that correct to say?
1: Absolutely. And it, If you even fast forward to today, um, think about the levels of trust involved with a money market fund that only owns treasury securities. You're trusting an entity that's regulated in a way that they basically, there's no way that they can't own those treasury securities. They have to prove all the time that they own them. Mm -hmm. And the treasury securities themselves have no counterparty risk. Uh, because they are attached to the U.S. government, um, that is layers of trust. But you're not that far away from final settlement, which in this case is U.S. Treasuries. Right. Um, like you're not far. You're not that far away from it. But in gold certificates, you are. You know, you are infinity away. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. unless it's a really trusted system. And so that was. Um, that was a problem for centuries, really. Is that you? There were no uh, Wells Fargos and Bank of Americas that were regulated by FDIC insurance. So you know that your two hundred and fifty thousand dollar checking account is is going to be made whole, no matter who is the bank, mm. right? That which I get into, you know, in the American portion of the history, that's an important evolution of money, which like satisfies this age old problem of, you know, if you just have a deposit, you don't have gold. You are so far away from ultimate settlement, even if it's only Mm -hmm. one layer, even if it's only just one promise between. And so, um, you know, that's why the Medici's were so successful for centuries because they Established a trust in their name that allowed them to lend more and um you know have their deposits circulate as money because people trusted.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. This the 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 relationship here between the trust necessary to scale one of these hierarchies and reputation is you can't get rid of that, right? So the most reputable firm or group, they tend to accumulate the most trust. Um, and so the I think we forget you know it's easy to forget that we're living in history there's people today who seem to think like everything we learned about history just happened then and now we live in this stable world but it's it's happening right it's still happening today and you even this blows my mind this is something I've written about as well that it was in 1202 the year 1202 that uh, Fibonacci was really coming uh, coming of age, and this was a time when the mathematical system itself was spreading across the world. So we didn't even have—we're talking about reconciling books here. We didn't even have common systems of numerals everywhere in the world. You know, Rome was using Roman numerals. There was this system called the Hindu Arabic numeral system that was based on zero, which was really important. That ultimately outcompeted everything else. Um, so it's easy for, to forget when we think, like, we take things for granted that, oh, you know, the system is stable and we have this certain type of money today, but we didn't even agree. We didn't have consensus on mathematics until, what, 800 years ago? Like, it's not that long ago. And that's the most fundamental language for for human interaction. So how, was, how did Fibonacci... Fit into this. I mean, it was it was kind of a revolution in mathematics, which led to a revolution in bookkeeping, which led to the 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 foundation for these these money hierarchies.
1: Yeah, and first of all, I love your uh, piece about zero. Um, Thank you. It's a it's a fantastic uh, it's a fantastic work. It's the you're so right about the mathematics consensus around math hadn't even developed so how can we get into layered money and hierarchies and all that and because that's built upon bookkeeping which is built upon math and so uh yes uh, the the coin history is its own path but the math history is independent of that and so when i uh so hierarchy of money requires only one thing and that's a relationship of balance sheets
0: mm-hmm.
1: right it doesn't require you can do uh you can do layered money with shells or or something else right it doesn't require gold it, mm-hmm. it, it just it, it just requires accounting and trust mm-hmm. a trust system so when i'm you know trying to trace the origins of the hierarchy of money you get back to um double entry accounting and then you, and then I, you know, under, and then I read uh, a, a great book about, uh, um, about accounting, you know, double entry, um, a book about double entry accounting that was a big part of my research early on. And, um, and then I realized that, you know, while researching that, the origins of double entry accounting, that it comes back to Fibonacci and the book that he wrote and mm. a book of calculation, mm-hmm. which he brought because he was living in uh, on the other side of the Mediterranean in Northern Africa. And in the bazaars, he learned the Hindu-Arabic numeral system mm. and the accounting techniques that they were using, which mirrored double-entry accounting. Mm-hmm. It's not the same system that was you know called the venetian way you know the the um, way that we do books today but the origins were there and so and then you and then you learn that in europe at the time they were still using roman numerals which what which wasn't capable of the just the basic arithmetic uh methods that the Hindu-Arabic system were using, and they were using in Northern Africa at the time. And so Fibonacci brought those, uh, basically the math portion, the arithmetic, the geometry, um, the numeral system, and also accounting techniques all in one book to Europe and popular popularize them mm-hmm. with his one book, his masterpiece. And so that changed the game forever because then you could start to get, that was basically the spread of the consensus, consensus math as mm-hmm. you, as you mm-hmm. just put it. So Fibonacci brought consensus math to Europe from Africa yeah. that, um, you know the Hindu-Arabic numeral system was in existence for thousands of years, right? Well, you tell me you're the you're the expert. What was the you know how long had that system existed?
0: Yeah, I think it was seventh century, um, for a call correctly, and it came out of both Cambodia and India was where they traced it back to.
1: Right, right. So you know a system that was better than Roman numerals. Yeah. For Commerce. I mean, that's what really what we're talking about. The uh, progression of mankind and, you know, economies growing is built off of trade, yeah. mutually beneficial trade. And, um, and so, you know, advanced math, it wasn't even advanced math from that perspective, but re- versus Roman numerals and yeah. uh, the old school way of doing it was an advance. And so um, Fibonacci brought the um tools for an emergent uh, merchant banking class
0: yeah yeah and there's a lot of parallels here i think with and the ways money competes and spreads too because what a lot of what supported the selection of the hindu arabic numeral system were merchants they're just choosing the best tool that lets them exchange information most efficiently to reach consensus most efficiently, and that's you know that's what money is doing as well, right? It's allowing us to reach consensus of of human action effectively to settle our books or whatever you. But math is doing the same thing, just maybe at a slightly more abstract layer. But they're they're also very interrelated. So it, through that perspective, it becomes clear that it's Darwinian, right? It's whoever is using a Hindu Arabic numeral system is just going to facilitate more trades more quickly, less error. They're going to scale their business more quickly. They're going to generate more profits. They're going to outcompete anyone that's you know, ideologi- ideologically stuck to the Roman numeral system or whatever it is. And that individual will go out of business. The guy using the Hindu Arabic numeral system will thrive. Ultimately, it outcompetes everything. And the same is sort of true with choosing the right money. If I keep choosing to store my wealth in silver, and other people are choosing gold, I'm going to be Eliminated, like I'll be naturally selected out of economic existence, effectively. So I love. I thought that relationship was so interesting and and really fundamental. But within all of this, so you get math, you get double-entry bookkeeping, which is a key component to capitalism to to um, scaling trade, let's say worldwide. But with that, you get and then we're getting into the hierarchies. You get this very important concept of counterparty risk, where you've got to now trust the counterpart to not doctor the books or um, you know, not make good on the deferred settlement and all of these other things. Um, so I thought that was a really good point too. You introduced counterparty risk from a really f- first principle standpoint and talk about how important it is in these hierarchies, because that plays into later how what Bitcoin how Bitcoin influences and changes the game of counterparty risk.
1: Yes, and thank you to the one uh, particular person that helped me hammer home that point after reading an early version of Layered Money. He said, you gotta bring counterparty risk early and hard because it sets up the Bitcoin thing so much better. Mm. And, you know, you're circling it. The story was already told, but he's like, you got to introduce counterparty risk, you know, really early and hit it hard. And um, it is, it's about default or not, you know, and it's default or not trust or not trusted or not. And um, that's what counterparty risk is. And so if your counterpart is good, He's going to, he or she is going to make good on, um, you know, the promise. And if not, you're, you're in trouble and, uh, down the road, the system gets in trouble, um, when it becomes interconnected. And that's also, uh, important to, to set up. It's that it's just, it's not just about you Failing, but when we get into Bank of England and the idea of the lender of last resort in the middle of the 19th century, um, you know, that was the first time when uh, counterparty risk really moved completely past the risk to you, Mm -hmm. the you know, (laughs) the holder of the risk, it's actually the risk to the system, and then thereby risk to our livelihoods, it yeah. turns out right yeah that's the case that um you know while the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve might frustrate me, and this is where I think I differ a little bit from uh, traditional uh you know Austrian uh thinkers and a lot of bitcoiners maybe is that it's not that um it's not that I love q e and what it does for my dollar mm. earnings and you know unit of account. It's not that I love QE for that, but the the argument that they made that, that they needed to do that to prevent systemic collapse because if the banks collapse, everything else collapse, and our livelihood goes down is justified to from their perspective, let's right. just say. Right. Maybe, maybe I choose a different approach and a solution, but you have to understand it's their system, and they're justified in protecting it by printing unlimited money. Um, we go and buy Bitcoin as our frustration and our uh, non-violent protests to this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's a core component of uh, what it means to be a Bitcoiner. Yep. and I love that about Bitcoin. Um but you can't you can't complain about QE because it's 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 the only thing that they know to keep their game alive.
0: Yeah, it's sort of a this is this is a tough one for me too as a bitcoiner. It's like sort of like don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, like the game is corrupt or just non sustainable, at least. But the individuals, central bankers sitting in that chair, they have no choice but to print money, to put more duct tape on the pyramid, basically.
1: That's the best way to put it. You can't hate the players in it. It's the the system is now um at, at a very minimum 108 years old if you're looking mm-hmm. at the Fed. Yeah. And uh, arguably centuries older if you step into uh you know a layered money approach to things um but you know as it is 1971 73 when gold left the dollar pyramid um Mm -hmm. that is you know that is the experiment yeah. that is the and and that is um the system that is broken mm-hmm. and needs to be addressed it doesn't need to be addressed with gold uh necessarily but um bitcoin is making a stronger argument for its role in the evolution of that mm-hmm. and um the the bigger the problems get in the dollar system the more people will come into uh, the alternative system
0: yes agreed and it, this to me uh because there's there's, some, there's an important deep point here. Actually, is that the hierarchy brings stability, right? And this is like, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. He talks about that, like every like nature organizes itself into hierarchies. He talks about the lobsters and and whatnot. But that brings stability in the social group. But the risk associated with that is tyranny, right? Like there's people that scurry up the hierarchy that can't oppress uh, those lower down. So we need basically higher, this is not something that even humans came up with. It's a a natural organizing principle that many social animals organize themselves into hierarchies. The, you know, central banking is one form of hierarchy in the sphere of money, which is very important, very important tool for humans. Um, And I agree that, they have to do what they have to do to keep the system going. But the problem to me comes into play when they try to suppress other options. If they try to suppress Bitcoin, anytime you're trying to suppress freedom, that just doesn't doesn't ring true with kind of like a human instinct, I guess. Um, And so what would, not to belabor the point too much, but like would the right approach then be for central to be like look we're going to print unlimited money we're going to keep putting duct tape on this thing but to be intellectually honest assuming they know what is going on they know this thing doesn't work what do they then say but we also think this system's not sustainable we should be buying bitcoin as a hedge against this whole thing like what, what's an ideal scenario for a Jerome Powell, let's say, to be intellectually honest about what he's doing, because we know printing the money's stealing from the middle class effectively or stealing from the lower end middle class. Um, there needs to be something on the other side of that in the event that 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 hierarchy does not hold up. Yeah,
1: well, I think that. Um, so the way that I like to phrase it, it, it's not that I disagree with that it steals from middle class, but this is the way that I like to frame it. QE printing money it enables those closest to the money spigot to continue to benefit and capitalize. You know another way of saying the rich get richer. Mm-hmm. That is that it directly enables that because it's the purchase of U.S. government debt, which underpins the system, and then corporate America borrows off of that rate, mm-hmm. and um, the banking system is you know held in. Uh, proper standing and they're able to issue credit to those that already have the existing relationships with them and the credit worthiness within their system. So QE is the rich get richer, a hundred percent. So stealing from the middle class is, uh, you know, a, a different way to put it, but yeah. it really is the, and it's the enabling of, um, it's the enabling of those closest to it mm-hmm. to continue to benefit right? And so when the Fed says we are trying to goose the wealth effect, which is that when stocks go up, Americans 401k goes up and they feel richer. So they go out and spend and consumption goes up on a aggregate level in the economy. They are being intellectually honest about that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And so with... I always like to joke that the Fed's third mandate, uh, official mandate, is the S and P 500. They yeah. have also acknowledged that. Yeah. I mean, you know, they don't say it; uh, it's not legislated in Congress, but they have said it many times. We are trying to support uh, asset prices because it increases the wealth effect. Bernanke said this early on and everybody believes it, uh, every Fed chair and and everybody believes it, that we got to protect the stock market. So, you know, again, that Mm -hmm. comes from QE, corporate borrowing, they buy back their own shares, they support their own share price, all of that is in the mix. So they're not even to me being uh, dishonest about that. Yeah. Uh, If you read between the lines, you can see that that is what they're trying to do. Where I draw the line is Bitcoin, just like you. This is, uh, it's actually uh, an inalienable right. Mm. And not by, uh, you know, any government or declaration of independence, but by whoever you consider your own creator. Like, Mm. you believe in math very much so, Robert. You are a math guy. You're a numbers guy, like me. Uh, I am, I'm a math guy. I can, I can make sense of numbers and you know what? We're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Most Bitcoiners are math people. They're Mm -hmm. inclined towards math because they're able to make sense of something that is potentially infinite and something that is not and make a decision between those two things. Mm -hmm. So those people are mathematically inclined, but also anybody who runs a business is, you know, mathematically in kind because you have an input and an output and the difference is your livelihood. Mm. And uh, that's, a, that's, an, that's an arithmetic uh, equation mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. So don't deny us something that is mathematical in nature and we believe in and is a form of speech. Not even by my own theory because I didn't come up with this idea that Bitcoin is speech. But reading... Uh, the cypherpunk literature pre-Satoshi and, um, and then part of my the research to layered money was the uh, federal court case that protected <clears throat> cryptography as speech because what they said is that they actually said any mathematician that is using a math model to back up their data a cryptography is using a system in a similar way it's a it's an it's a form of expression mm-hmm. it's a form of mathematical expression right so i am encouraged as an american that we don't have ban bitcoin rhetoric flying mm-hmm. free we have a sensible conversation. We also have one of the biggest IPOs of all time. That's a Bitcoin centric company. Um, you know, how, no matter how popular or not they are with Bitcoiners itself, it matters that if there's one thing that matters to uh, the government of the United States, it's their, you know, it's, it's corporations. Right. And so Bitcoin is not going to be banned in the United States. <clears throat> Enough people recognize it as a form of expression, math. And freedom—that the restriction of ownership and the restriction of using it—it um, it doesn't seem like it's in the cards. If it is in the United States, the United States is in trouble. And in the, on the long, you know, on a longer-term horizon, let's just be honest. And so I think that every government wants to protect their um, longevity. And so when the politicians really take a look at it, um, they'll see that the path of least resistance. Toward Bitcoin is going to be beneficial to the nation. Um, yeah. They will also piggyback off of other nations that win by being first, mm-hmm. and uh, the competition will. That's regulatory arbitrage. Uh, I say it in every single interview because it just—it's so—it's—it—it's it, it's going to govern the way Bitcoin moves in the future. Jurisdictional arbitrage mandates that companies and people will move to where they can use things the easiest yes so how can the u.s go um awol on bitcoin and survive they won't be able to do it therefore they won't do it i don't i just don't believe that Um, and i'm not i'm an optimist so um Mm. you know but I, i i believe that and i hope to be a part of the conversation too
0: yeah i think it's a great way to put it and um it we you know the other thing, at least in the U.S. By virtue of being the global reserve currency, it further reinforces the sense making of printing more, putting more duct tape on the hierarchy, printing more dollars because we're exporting a lot of that inflation. Right, I think you know the world. What I, it's quoted in your book somewhere. Maybe half the world's transactions are denominated in dollars, something to that effect. So we're able to that's probably our largest export is the us dollar and the inflation associated with it and it is important to realize that this this you know again the the concept of hierarchies runs very deep and for humans to keep the hierarchy vitalized and functioning properly you need the free flow of information throughout the hierarchy and that is the importance of free speech so we you know it's this um this concept of letting your ideas go to battle and fight and die so that you know we don't end up in kinetic real warfare right we need to be able to to that's the, that's why free speech is the cornerstone of western civilization it's like so we can operate on this plane of reason and intellect and reach consensus non-violently effectively yep and, and that's so, why i wrote
1: the book because it's uh, i mean what, what else do we have other than, uh, trying to communicate things to, uh, our, you know, fellow humankind. And, um, I, I was encouraged by people to keep writing like yourself. I mean, um, you know, early conversations with you, um, were, were key for me because, you know, we talked about, you know, you're asking me, how do I teach? And, uh, you know, I'm asking you, how do you write so much? You know, mm-hmm. you're a beast. Uh, I mean, we've had that, those talks and it's all about trying to spread ideas. And so, um, it's like, it's like, you're going to, are would you ban writing books? Like, right. I mean, yeah. really that it's, it's that That's slippery cool. of a slope. It's yeah. that slippery of a slope and don't get me with, you know, financing terrorist activity or like money laundering narratives they're not going to hold uh over the long term
0: absolutely correct and it's that's it's such a slippery slope it's the slipperiest slope you try to constrict speech in any form you end up with absurdities like certain numbers are illegal it's like it makes it it's not even conceivable um I do take a very, I think, absolute stance on that. That freedom of speech is always has to be of, of highest importance.
1: So, and we- and 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 two, like, I mean, there's so many nuances within the freedom of speech. Like, yeah, well, you know, what about racist speech? What about hate speech? What about all these things? Mm-hmm that's its own debate. This isn't that. Yeah. Bitcoin isn't hate speech right. at all. Like right. you, you can have your own debate about hate speech and, you know, like what is the line uh, to cross between uh, what we should restrict as speech or, you know, whether Twitter can ban this person or that person from saying things. Mm-hmm. Those are Those are their own debates and, you know, yeah. political and it really doesn't matter where you fall on those Debates when it comes to Bitcoin, it's 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 it it's just not um, in that realm of yeah. where the debate about speech is today.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's safe to say that mathematics and cryptography cannot be classified as hate speech. No, and if it ever that. is, uh, we've we've really gone off the fiat deep end. Um, so just bringing it back to the book, the first hierarchy you display, and it has these great visuals that I think visuals are very important to, to bring home the point. You have gold and silver coins at the apex of the pyramid, we have the Medici banking family as the second layer below that, and then the bills of exchange that they issue. So that was sort of the first, I mean, at least the first hierarchy of money that you're analyzing here. Um, and the, the with this, these bills of exchange. So they're holding, you know, I guess we call it base or layer one money, gold and silver. Right. The Medici family is the intermediary, then issuing bills of exchange to that money. And this introduced not only did it introduce counterparty risk in the form of the Medici family themselves, but also introduced this concept of the elasticity of money, because now they have the wherewithal to expand that the bill, the supply of bills of exchange beyond what they maybe have in reserves. And this is a very fundamental concept in the understanding of hierarchies as well.
1: Fractional reserve money is absolutely uh, fundamental to understanding what a credit money system is, which is the uh, dollar system that we all live in. And so, um, you know you either have what you've promised or you don't have it Mm -hmm. and um when things are good it doesn't matter whether you have it or not because nobody is uh fleeing lower layer money for higher Mm -hmm. layer money right but when that does happen uh things can get very crazy uh very quickly and so um Elasticity is an important concept because um, gold cannot be uh, stretched like a rubber band. Its supply cannot be expanded. It does not have elasticity. It can be mined. It can be um, melted down, Um, but it can't be expanded. Credit can be expanded, um, which makes it really, An amazing tool, frankly, Uh, it brings it brings instabilities, it brings um, arguments of uh, it brings moral arguments into the play where if you have the ability to issue loans that, uh, you know, serve as money, it's a form of privilege that can be abused and governments can take over that and abuse that privilege and it brings moral uh questions into play. Uh but the hierarchy of money is basically the government, you know, saying we want our money to be the trusted money.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um you know really monopolize that issuance. So when the Medici family issues you know bills of exchange, they're expanding the money supply, the government comes in they issue government currency, um, which expands the money supply, but it also brings into well, what are you doing with that money? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, uh, what's your process right. in administering that, that free money that you've given yourself? You know, you call it counterfeiting. There's a lot of ways mm-hmm. to describe that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, um, the Medici family, like you said later, it's not the second layer. They're the intermediary they issue the second layer and um they can issue as much as they want until they're called on it right and so um you know certain certain families build that dynasty um certain governments do as we see um later in history and then certain ones are not able to sustain that they get called um and uh defaults happen and instability happens
0: I think called is the right verb there because it is they're, they're purposefully expanding their own optionality effectively, right? They're holding real money, expanding bills of exchange arbitrarily to do whatever they want. They dole it out arbitrarily. They spend it, um, what have you. So it's, and I love that the analogy you use that when things are good, no one's demanding final settlement, right? It's just layers and layers of deferred settlement upon deferred settlement. But then when there's a shake in the confidence, the people scurry up the pyramid. So they're running out of bills of exchange, trying to get into gold and silver, because they know that's the trust minimized money. And this, um, you described it this way. You said, first layer of money emerged as a better way to store value over longer periods of time. And second layer of money emerged as a better way to transact because it was more flexible to use than coinage. And I've described this as you so We have, I say that money is a tool for storing value across time and space. You could say that first layer of money really good at storing value across time, but hard to move across space because high transaction cost. But this introduction of second layer of money now gives us transactability across space, but it mitigates the transactability across time because of these counterparty risk and scurries up the pyramid as you describe them.
1: Absolutely. And and if it if that's an eight hundred year old problem, then how how amazing is Bitcoin? Right. Because it it, it blends space and time yep. uh, in a way that we never have. And right. that's why I wrote this book. You gotta give the context. The eight hundred year context and more for for how amazing this innovation is. People just, uh, you know, in Bitcoin, we all get it, we love it, we're in it. Yeah. But like you said, people that don't know a thing about finance can pick up layered money and um, really take that dive into understanding. Wow, you know, um, this is this is an innovation, and this is um, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, so. Th- you know, again, the analogy to something like the options market, you're issuing these second layer monies on top of first layer money as derivative, right? It's a derivative instrument. So you're increasing, again, transactability, but it's your increasing risk as well, right? So you're increasing volatility in the marketplace. And another line from your book here, you say second layer money is therefore inherently unstable as the power to create it will always be subject to human abuse similar to our example of the English goldsmith who abused the public's confidence in his creditworthiness. So we, we've to the issuer or the custodian of the first layer of money themselves, they now get this additional optionality in the marketplace. but with that comes the temptation and incentive over time to abuse that because they, they effectively have a free have a money printer, Right, they can just print these bills of exchange um, for real money and and do it as they please. So, and then Bitcoin, to your point, it's like we finally have a money <laughs> that's purely informational that you can settle with finality, more or less instantly. You know, within an hour anywhere in the world, and it just cuts out the need a lot of the need for this um, this counterparty risk, effectively. That's been so. Integral to monetary hierarchies historically,
1: yeah, and that's why I always recommend that people read your work because you, one of the things that you do, is you try to envision the benefits to uh, society from this uh, shift in property rights, fundamental shift in property rights uh, for our species that we've never had, mm. and um. And, and you have to be a dreamer to, to you know, br- embrace that mm-hmm. uh, and how important Bitcoin can be because, um, you know, no, having the confidence of that final settlement f- through many generations looking forward um, can change change humanity and it can change the way that we do things and uh because the bitcoin is so obvious to me because of what the internet did Mm -hmm. to the world that's like i mean i i try to you know make a few analogies in the book to bring you know bring that point home that you know things like email and http these sort of protocols um have changed the world and uh, the internet, number of internet users, and global adoption has followed a curve that uh, is being followed by Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And the way that the internet changed the world, the you know Bitcoin is going to completely alter how we think about property uh, across the world, and it and it definitely changes this idea that. Americans have a leg up because they have better access to the dollar system and dollar credit markets and uh, can capitalize on that. So it definitely is, um, it's, I I don't think it threatens the dollar explicitly, but it, just like the internet didn't threaten the United States, right?
0: right? Yeah.
1: The internet didn't. Th- it, it looking back, it didn't threaten the United States, right. even though it brought more um, decentralization to everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, yeah, maybe the you know, dollar has lost some world reserve currency status at the margin since the internet came to be. I'm not sure that you could directly correlate it. Right. Um, maybe you could, but the you know, Bitcoin. Um, it's not the demise of the United States, especially if Americans are the ones that are, you know, investing in Bitcoin and have a lot of Bitcoin and are building mm-hmm. Bitcoin focused uh, solutions and businesses for people all around the world.
0: And it really comes down to how, how willing the United States is to embrace Bitcoin, because in, with the Internet, they took the do not harm approach. Right. This is just let the free market figure itself out. Let these innovations flourish, despite any theoretical threat they that may have represented to you know centralized power structures. They let it more or less play out, and that became a huge boon to the United States. Like the most powerful and valuable companies that came out of that revolution, they all came from the U.S. Um, so I think that yeah, it's it's incumbent of. A, Upon U.S. policymakers and legislators to really take a similar approach with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I think that uh, I've I've said in the past that I think uh, you know the U.S. is going to approve Bitcoin ETFs. But if they don't, that's also a do no harm policy. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not an anti-Bitcoin stance to not approve a Bitcoin ETF. Mm -hmm. Um, Bitcoin can grow without an ETF. People obviously are finding their way into the market in other ways. Um, So, and with Coinbase trading, you know, public now, it brings people more confidence that they can use third parties to get involved uh, and they don't maybe necessarily need an ETF, Um, but yeah. It, it's It's a do no harm and I see that that is unfolding. The fact that we're 12 years into this thing and there's no ban, there's no restriction of usage, there's no laws against operating a node. There are no laws against mining. Um, the, the, you know uh, <laughs> there's a public company now
0: yeah.
1: that's uh, you know um, Bitcoin centric so um, I'm hoping that that's that will continue.
0: Yeah, agreed. And it, so the whole kind of bringing it back to the book here, we all of these things just dissipate transaction costs, right? Even the internet dissipated the transaction costs associated with information. We could just communicate much more with much less friction. And now Bitcoin's doing the same thing for commercial value effectively. We just can move value with much less friction. And this is a problem, like, as your book explores, this is as old as humanity itself. We've been trying, we've been building different institutions to decrease the friction of, of information and value flows since the beginning. And one of which you talked about was the, you get into the creation of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, the Antwerp Bourse yeah, 1531. And this was the the first stock exchange, right? Or one of the original stock exchanges. Um, and. Yeah, I'll just maybe let you describe some of that and its relationship with the joint stock company and how that yeah. led to the proliferation of capitalism.
1: Yeah, so, you know, the word bourse or burs is, uh, you know, universal in European languages. It means exchange or stock exchange in uh, pretty much every European language. Uh, the original one um, was nearby Antwerp in Bruges. It, and Bruges in and that place was a, meet, a meeting place for merchants and bankers to come and do the, the book settlement that we talked about. So it was like a club. Mm-hmm. And in Antwerp in 50, 1531, we had the first place ever that bills of exchange issuers could come and meet and in an open outcry sort of way, trade with each other every day. It was the first meeting, like, oh, you know, it was the first exchange ever Mm -hmm. where people came and traded. And they weren't trading um, just other commodities like cloth and metals and things like that. They were trading bills of exchange. Mm -hmm. They were trading credit money instruments and they put a price on bills. Bills didn't settle... In the interim, before Antwerp, mm. it was just a maturity game. And that was uh, a huge shift in the story of Layered Money because now these promises, these credit instruments, these IOUs, all could have a live price. And it's also it also coincided with the birth of the financial media, mm-hmm. the first ever, you know, quotes – in a paper, in a newspaper, happened because of the price of borrowing and the bill market in in the Antwerp Bourse in 1531. Now, Antwerp was the international commerce hub at that time in Europe because of its position uh, geographically. Um, But during the Dutch Revolt, uh, Antwerp was blockaded And the hub both of European commerce and finance moved to Amsterdam. And that that really gets the story started. Uh, That's where the story gets really interesting. Um, because you have three things happen in succession in Amsterdam that leads to the Bank of Amsterdam, the third thing being the creation of Bank of Amsterdam. The first thing is the creation of the first ever joint stock company. This is the Dutch East India Company, uh, otherwise known as a VOC, which is the Dutch uh, um, Dutch uh, translation. The VOC was, uh, you know, an imperial uh, an imperial type of company going to Asia. Um, uh, Brand-sacking commodities and bringing them back, and you know, engaging in trade, and, own they, and yeah. they had the right,
0: right, they had their own army and everything. They
1: had their right to wage war. You know, their charter in their charter, they could, um, you know, wage war on behalf of um, the Dutch Republic and things of that nature. So, the the company itself was wildly successful and was the coming together of many merchants that were doing that type of business in Asia. So, the, basically, the merchants got together and said, we can raise capital uh, jointly and really compound and leverage. This is, you know, an example of leverage. And so, they did that. They got a charter. Right away, people wanted to cash out of their shares because the company was doing so well. And so, where did they you know where could they sell their shares the first in you know it's like when a company goes public you know the the early ones want to cash out Mm -hmm. um where do you cash out if you own voc shares that's where we get the founding of the amsterdam bourse the first ever stock exchange in the world because of the first ever stock uh Mm -hmm. company you know a joint stock company Mm -hmm. and so these shares traded in the, in the Amsterdam Bourse because, you know, they needed a, a market for liquidity. Uh, these shares needed liquidity. Liquidity is simply turning something that can't be used as cash to something that can be used as cash.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the shares found liquidity at the Amsterdam Boris. Then the government, the city of Amsterdam said, we should have a clearing house where we can monitor and surveil all the activity going on in VOC shares. We want to see it and we want to clear it. And so it's, a, it's an innovation because it helps the velocity of money. If I'm selling shares to you and you just credit my uh, Bank of Amsterdam account, Instead of giving me coins or writing me a promise, now we know the city has this uh, chartered bank that can, um, you know, holds gold and silver in reserves and we can all trust its deposits. We can really trust it because, you know, it's the city of Amsterdam and it's mm. the year 1609 and, uh, you know, it's going to make it everything better. And um, through that, government monopolized the issuance of second layer money in my framework. It was. It's an incredibly fascinating uh, seven years. And uh, I've told the story. I read the paper on that era like 20 times uh, hmm. to try to just figure out how to tell this portion of the story hmm. um, because it really was uh, this – it opened up the idea of privileged lending Mm-hmm. which is you know, QE and, and treasuries on the balance sheet of the Fed. It's all privileged lending. And when I saw – I actually saw a um, mocked-up balance sheet of the original Bank of Amsterdam, and it was basically like liabilities were BOA deposits, and the asset side was gold, loans to the city of Amsterdam, loans to the VOC. <laughs> and it just sparked these light bulbs like, oh, my God, that's the same thing as the Fed's balance sheet today yeah. minus gold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, and so the parallels were mind, you know, a little mind boggling and, and 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 really got the story moving for me.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. It's like we, you know, we figured out. Again, the mathematical revolution that gave us this language of consensus globally. And then we figured out how to actually apply that to make capital and risk more deeply fractionated so that you could draw in a lot more participants, right? Because typically these business ventures I assume would have been reserved for just a few high net worth guys that are meeting to settle their books, but all of a sudden they can now get exposure and access to public capital. Um, and that just leads to more concerted human action at scale. All of a sudden, we can capitalize much larger and longer-term projects. Um, and it, it was it, this was essential to the scaling of humanity. Effectively, to be able to pull and pull capital in this way and create uh, so much liquidity that people could get in and out and share risk and all of this. Um, it's almost like the wiring together of it's like uh the wiring together of the global mind, you know, not that global at this point, but a pocket of it. And this is the framework on which we would basically globalize the world. You know, this was the 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 core foundations of of capitalism in a lot of way, just this this act of free exchange. And this one line in your book I think is really important. So that Antwerp prided itself in its regulation-free environment where the trade between first layer coins and second layer bills and between the bills themselves didn't require licenses and wasn't subject to taxes. So it was removing these impediments to free trade. It was maximizing its its utility as a marketplace. And that's what enabled it to create so much wealth effectively.
1: Well, and, and in Antwerp, that's why um, all the other trade was done there too, like English cloth and uh, spices from Asia, it all went through Antwerp because it was uh, it was a free trade hub.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, Amsterdam picked up a lot of that uh, from the free trade standpoint. But then, you know, with their innovation in the joint stock company, it made uh, the free trade itself less important and the ability to pool capital, as you just put it, um, it put that center stage. You know that we can. Um, you know it doesn't. It doesn't have to be about the lowest taxes here. It it's like our unit brings people in, and and that can uh, you know and through that we can pool capital through our unit, mm-hmm. the Bank of Amsterdam deposit, right. and build consensus around that you know Dutch Gilder unit and um build that that's what we saw in florence in the 13th to the 15th century that the unit itself had consensus and that brought you know a uh, you know wealth yes and yes. so um the dutch fielder did serve that function and for that reason um it's it's probably the first reserve world reserve currency that matters because a world reserve currency that's just a coin you know in terms of like the spanish and the portuguese coins mm-hmm. in centuries prior to the dutch guilder, doesn't really convince me that that is um, you know important to classify as a world reserve currency mm-hmm. but the dutch guilder. Pu- it brought capital in yeah. and capital was held abroad in this unit because it fit the reserve status and it was a second layer of money. It wasn't a gold coin. Mm-hmm. it was a deposit with coin with coins on you know in, in, held in reserve. And for the most part uh, the Bank of Amsterdam was mostly reserved. They had some fractional, they had some loans to the VOC. So obviously some of their deposits were backed by loans to counterparty worthy um, borrowers, like, uh, you know, the privileged VOC and the city itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was trusted and, you know, it, and it held for a uh, hundred years.
0: Yeah. It's as if the, I guess they established his reputation for themselves, and that it's that reputation that actually draws in the trust of others, right? Other market participants to basically scale the hierarchy, and so that gets us into the second hierarchy in your book, where you have gold and silver coins at the apex. We now have the Antwerp bankers in the middle, and then you have bills of exchange and notes at the bottom of the pyramid. Um, so we see that the hierarchy is expanding, right, based on the technological realities of the time and the, the way we the way that systems the hierarchy was being organized led to its growth I guess you could say
1: right because now when now when the bills found a price uh you didn't pay coins for them mm-hmm. you just paid another piece you just paid with another piece of paper those were called notes and so the origin of notes were we need a piece of paper that we can exchange with each other at the end of the day when we're done trading bills so that we still don't have to use coins yeah and so we use notes and so um that's the you know that's the origin of cash right there
0: yeah
1: that's that's it was a really fascinating thing
0: so we had then the the bank of Amsterdam. Uh, be, essentially become the world's first central bank. and then that laid that model was then adapted in England to become the Bank of England, which was a really consequential development in world history.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. yeah, the Bank of Eng- Eng, uh, the Bank of England definitely drew inspiration from the Bank of Amsterdam. Uh, not only the central bank being able to monopolize the second layer of money and use it to their benefit um, and in the form of war finance at the time, um, but also it was really important for the development of a three-layered money system in which commercial banks and the central bank have a relationship and a hierarchy between them in terms of the instruments that are used in a financial system. So the Bank of England purchasing debt of the government of England at the time in order to wage their war, rebuild their army um, in 1694 was a little bit of a play on what the Bank of Amsterdam had done with the VOC, where they're lending the VOC money to do their thing. So that's not the innovation of the, of the Bank of England. The innovation there was that they have Bank of England deposits that are then leveraged by commercial banks to um, create a multi-layered system of credit elasticity that brings more risk into the system it also brings more uh it brings more regular financial panics and the idea of bank runs that are cured by a central bank so the central bank now assuming a role of um stabilizer in the system and then uh you know finally and i say finally because this is when central banking really coalesced around a uh, a single narrative, which was lender of last resort within a system. And that came from Walter Badgett in mid 19th century. Um, and that's the model that the Fed used um, when it was created. It's, it's, a, it's an issuer of reserves to the banking system. It can issue a paper currency that can circulate. Uh, it regulates an entire banking system of leverage um, by its own governing, and it's also there to be a lender of last resort when there's a liquidity crunch on um, more counterparty-laden, counterparty risk-laden uh, counterparty risk layers of money.
0: Yeah, <clears throat> and it's you, you say in the book that. Basically, they were replacing this decentralized system of goldsmiths, which you know held gold, circulated notes, discounted bills, with a more centralized system. Effectively, um, and I, I get the the original impetus for that was war financing. Is that correct?
1: The creation of yeah. the Bank of England was to finance the rebuilding of the British uh, Navy. Yeah, and so. That, um, you know, that motivated it, but then you use all the other things like it's going to be great for, you know, to have a unified, uh, you know, unit of account because the trend was um, a very decentralized issuance of money Mm -hmm. where, you know, this goldsmith issued these notes and that goldsmith issued, issued those notes and, you know, both of them are trustworthy, but they're not Fungible with each other necessarily, um, or it just it just slows down the velocity of money a little bit. So you can use all those other things as good cover, and it's not like it wasn't a part of the reason. But you know, let's be honest, uh, it, it it all it always comes down to war finance yep. <laughs> when you when you really study history. Um, the Fed is uh, not a stranger to that as well. Um, yep. World War One and World War Two were financed by the Fed.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, i think it's a from the american side yeah really important point that there is a deep relationship between war and the central bank um and also with the bank of england it was instrumental in ushering in the global gold standard right they were kind of the leader to that effect and and isaac newton was the was he the head of the Bank of England for a while? Is that right? And then...
1: He was the master of the mint. Master of the mint. For the Bank of England. And he was tasked with um, a study of gold versus silver hmm. and the exchange rate between the two and the role of each in, um, in the minting of coins um, uh, at that government level. So what... I think um, nobody is able to really uh, identify is what exactly Newton's motivation was to um, bringing a gold standard mm-hmm. into, um, into the foray. Um, but what he did was he studied the exchange rates of between gold and silver across Europe. And he came up with this number that he thinks he thought that, you know, this is the right exchange rate and um the exchange rate that he picked eventually obsoleted uh, silver entirely from the English monetary system. Mm-hmm. And because the British empire uh, became what it did in the 19th and then the early part of the 20th century, the uh, you know British pound backed by gold was the world reserve currency. And then drew in, much like Bitcoin's gravity, which we like to talk about pretty often, Mm -hmm. Um, the gravity of gold, a gold-backed pound brought other currencies into gold backing so that they weren't actually being pulled by the pound, they were being pulled by gold. Mm -hmm. And so, they were trying to mimic that. That spread throughout the world. And finally, in 1900, you had the Gold Standard Act in the United States, where silver also left our monetary system here in the U.S. But, um, you know, that all started with uh, Newton and the master of the mint. So it was a long path from uh, the early 1700s when Sir Isaac Newton uh, made that decision to uh, the year 1900, where uh, it was a full global gold standard.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there is – He was kind of a mysterious guy. (laughs) A lot of his work, I think, when it was uncovered, he was a known alchemist, actually. He was very deep into the study of alchemy. And there's, I don't know, this is not confirmed, but um, there's rumor that part of that study was to determine what standard to put the Bank of England on. Once he determined that you could not create gold from lead, he said he decided that gold was the right metal to found uh, or to premise the central bank upon and then he created the to your point he created this exchange rate that made it profitable for arbitragers to export silver and import gold so he kind of just That's created right. an incentive system that centralized the custody of gold into the bank of england um and eventually you know through through a combination of that and the and england's imperial efforts they became the central bank of the world effectively
1: so, I like your uh, I like your Newton story. So maybe in the second edition, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll add a little bit of that because that 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 makes the story a lot better for sure. <laughs>
0: um, yeah, whatever the motivations were, it was you know, in the scope of history, genius um, put being put England into the seat of world superpower for for centuries to come. Um so then the the I guess so the next pyramid that you show or the hierarchy that you show in your your book here I guess we're fast-forwarding a little bit is that so so Bank of England became I guess the blueprint for central modern central banks as we know them. And so what we have today then is gold at the apex, central banks intermediating and then you have currencies at the bottom layer like the pound, US dollars, French francs, German marks, etc um and that up until that point that's what they were they were redeemable for gold notes redeemable for gold through the central bank
1: yeah and um you know that that pyramid is a very simplified look at the international monetary system because it doesn't even include the commercial banking industries within those countries mm-hmm. that are anchored to each one of those currencies so that's only you know uh to show you that multiple currencies were redeemable for gold. The gold existed by itself on the first layer of money. Everything else was anchored to that.
0: Yeah. And those names, a lot lot of them, uh, like the lira, the pound, uh, maybe francs as well, they they actually are terms for weight. So they were weight, they were um, redemption certificates for a certain weight of gold. That's where they get their name effectively. Um, yeah
1: the the pound the pound uh, definitely um, you know the word comes from uh, a weight of silver uh, you know that that that's where the origin is and um, and so yeah the you know currencies are inextricably linked to precious metals just in in um, the way that they formed currency is simply a current mm-hmm it's simply flow. Yeah. It's not meant to be um, an asset, a commodity, or a storage vehicle. They are very different words. Um, I was speaking with um, I was speaking with somebody about the nuance of calling Bitcoin a currency, mm-hmm. and they said, "You know, I don't, I don't love when." We call it a currency uh, because, um, you know, they prefer money, right? Yeah. They prefer the word money. But I said, it is a currency because it flows.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That doesn't mean that it's the only word or the best word, but it's not an incorrect word to describe Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, it's an asset also. It's a, you know, it's a numerical commodity. It's all these different things, but it's definitely currency because it has current. And so these government currencies were just meant to be a current of gold, not gold yeah. itself. And that facilitates the functioning of governments and, and industry and trade and all those sort of things. That's why governments furnish currencies so that there can be money velocity within their jurisdiction. That's, right. not, uh, that's not governed by gold because if it's governed by gold, government what good is the government government doesn't have any control or power to influence things mm-hmm. um, the government you know whether or not it's doing it for its own benefit or whether you know selfish or or not the government is trying to facilitate things for for its economy itself mm-hmm. and so currencies are meant to do that
0: yeah it's like the currencies are introduced to stream gold in a way right because gold That's right. again it's absolutely it Gold has all those transaction costs that are hard to overcome. So we insert technologies and institutions to overcome those transaction costs effectively and scale gold. That's right. And at this point, we hit on this earlier, but there's a great line in your book that ties it in it says, As the pyramid of money grows, the lower layers in the pyramid have the most elasticity, but also the most fragility as a byproduct. So we're you know, we're getting this ability to stream gold to to leverage gold. I guess you could say as well, because you're expanding, you're fractionally reserving, you're expanding the the supply of notes and and of notes, bank notes, and it's growing. Right? We can. We're, we're moving faster. We're stimulating economic activity. You, you can do all these things with the magic of of inflation. I guess you could say, but the, all the while. <laughs> As the pyramid grows, it's also becoming inherently less stable, which I think is a really important point.
1: And when you look back at history, um, we can see that financial panics and boom and bust cycles and runs on banks and uh, business cycles themselves, you know, which is associated with boom bust, that these are now constants in our society. Mm -hmm. Uh, they've been going on for hundreds of years they are a byproduct of a layered money system in which there's fractional um and even when there's not just the fact that there's trust involved means that there's going to be defaults and defaults cause busts and and things like that so it's almost like you have to diagnose why there are crises, but you don't have to do much more than that because they've never gone away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a book uh, called, uh, you know, eight, eight centuries of financial folly. That's the subtitle. I'm blanking on the name. I'm mm-hmm. sure, I'm sure you've read it. Uh, Reinert and, and Rogoff. Uh,
0: oh, this time is
1: different. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I read this time is different for layered money. I didn't, I ended up not using it as a, as a reference or pulling anything out of it because, you know, it was actually just trying to compare different financial crises to each other and group them Mm -hmm. and diagnose them um, and basically say that it's never different. They all follow the certain, you know, the same uh, pattern Mm -hmm. within these several categories that, you know, that's not that informative to me other than that they, they happened. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, they happened. And, it, you know, yeah, some are like government, some are leverage caused. Um, but if we just put it into the framework of layered money and that hierarchy breeds fragility due to trust, to layers of trust, um, and then you introduce fractional reserve. Um, of course, you're going to have crises, and they're they're getting bigger. I mean, and that's that's really the point here is that when we fast forward all the way to 2008, 2020 um, in the US, 2011 uh, and 13 in Europe, um, and then you know these emerging market crises that we have. Um, you know, keep rearing their heads and um, certain currencies in Brazil, Turkey, and then, you know, not to mention the um, total dumpster fire ones like Venezuela. Um, it just goes to show that fragility cannot be fixed in an right. age system. It can't be fixed without a brand new um, a brand new system, right? And so, uh, do central bank digital currencies really do anything to reinvent their current architecture of their system? I'm not. I'm not sure that it does. And so that's why we need Bitcoin. It's not like CBDCs just all of a sudden are a new system and it's and everything is fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's
0: a new band aid, right? If it, that
1: it it it's a new parallel system within their system mm-hmm. but the you know it, it might not be a band-aid but it's definitely not a new system it's mm-hmm. actually just a new it's just a new second layer uh, yeah. joining joining everything else it doesn't change the relationship between the second and the first layer and it also doesn't affect that the first layer of money today is u.s treasuries and nothing else right um which is a huge part of the longevity problem to the system because, you know, that's just a blank check to the U.S. government. Right. And geopolitically speaking, that's not something that the world wants uh, to go on forever. Um, you know, it's not just like uh, we don't want to use the, the petrodollar because of the oil trade and let's buy oil in euros and that fixes the thing. It doesn't fix the thing. Um, yeah the thing is a blank check to the U S government. And that is not something that let's say China wants, uh, you know, to keep going forever. And, um, and now we see that in other countries as well. It's not, it, U S dollar is declining at the margin all the Mm -hmm. time in terms of its uh, reserve status and its uh, status as an international, um, medium of exchange. Mm -hmm. Um, even though U S treasuries are still the dominant reserve uh, what they call it the risk-free asset of the world, it's still dominant. They are making so much of it that uh, people are seeking that alternative. And so yeah. that's why you see, I really do believe this um, stocks going up so much because um, you know what shares in Apple might just be a much better long-term store of value than U.S. treasuries because Apple can change its denomination at any time. And uh, it's not, it's not, Apple isn't in the U.S. dollar system nor any of those tech companies. And uh, while the valuations might appear stupid, what premium do you put on gold? It's infinite because there's no use to it. You know, I'm, I'm ignoring the industrial uses all that kind of stuff. The multiple of, of, of the price to earnings ratio of gold is infinity. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) so what, I mean, what does it matter if you've paid a hundred times earnings on a tech company when the alternative is a fixed income asset tied to government that's tied to, um, a burning building? So
0: yes, yeah. uh, you
1: know I, I I'm not I'm not uh, endorsing uh, you know equity market investing or even um, trying to justify the valuations, but there is an explanation beyond earnings
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that goes into those valuations, and it's and it comes down to multiple because the alternative is something that um, I think people are not able to wrap their minds around. So they'll pay a hundred because it's a number. Um, And, uh, you know, that's why they still own gold around the world. Um, Because, you know, you have to escape this fixed um, burning building you know, you know, the fixed income stream from the burning building, you have to escape that by buying gold, by buying some asset, by buying a tech company, or by buying Bitcoin, or by buying real estate. And we all know that real estate has its own multiple too, cap rates. And these things are part of valuation of real estate. How much can you get rent? And what's the what's the yield on your property, the inverse of yield is the price to earnings multiple Um, that can go up, To 50 it can go up to 100 because you can actually measure it Mm -hmm. and uh, you can change the unit at any time that you're collecting you know your rent and and so uh, that is part of why we have stretched valuations because they might not be stretched for the people that are buying them
0: right yeah this is so this is such a really great point and seemingly just not understood by many market actors like you know they're they're trapped within uh system thinking right that the way it's worked for the past hundred some odd years is just the way it works period but there's systemic you know systemic issues and they're accumulating more and more rapidly and this back to the bank of England was originated by that model right they were the first central bank to insert debt government debt as base layer money alongside gold, effectively, is that right? Was-
1: the Bank of Amsterdam had privileged lending. Also, mm-hmm. um, the Bank of England, when it financed the war, um, and and government debt was uh, the staple of the balance sheet of the central bank yes, that was, that was the first uh, of its kind and uh, really set the tone, but they drew inspiration from Amsterdam for sure.
0: So they, we've then at that point, by inserting debt as layer one money, we have created, we've removed some equity, what gold would just be equity-based money, we've inserted debt. And now, you know, more debt, more fragility, more volatility. It just sort of percolates down the pyramid, if you will. And that to your point about bonds, it's like the fixed, people have to leave these fixed income instruments because the income's being paid in an instrument that is actually being used to implicitly default effectively. So they're actually externalizing um, the inflation through the, the currency. Basically that's what inflation is doing. And it's this, instead of, again, we're back to the, whether it's a store of value or whether it's, you know, whether it's good for moving value across time or good for moving value across space, when you start putting debt in the base layer, the whole, the whole thing, the whole hierarchy becomes much less robust across time because you now have all these intertemporal trust arrangements that weren't there when you had gold as a base layer. To your point, you say gold, gold was a disciplinary force. Gold is a force that keeps the whole hierarchy honest, effectively. It's, there's an option to settle to a layer that no one can politicize, corrupt, or manipulate. And when you remove that optionality, you make the whole thing less stable.
1: Well, and you can also paper, just paper over it uh, very easily. right. And, um, and that's, and that's what we see the Fed doing is they just have this ability to paper over because they don't have any disciplinary constraint. Um, You know, there's a great uh, line from, uh, I, I believe it's Merling's work is that the disciplinary constraint today is just what central bankers are willing to do in their, in their own conferences, like when their own chats, like what they're willing to to do, that's the only constraint that they have. It's their own, um, you know, long-term reputation. So, they do as much as they think they can do, you know, to get away with. And, Which is yeah, no co- constraint, basically. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, we've seen that. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, quantitatively speaking, it's just uh, there's no limit. They, that's what they said during COVID. Um, they, it's unlimited QE. Right, that's the new policy, yeah. And um, so when you they talk about tapering QE, it's it's a joke um, because if they lower it, when they increase it again, they're just going to say, "Oh, it's infinity on the upside." <laughs> so yeah. you know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. They've they've established that that's the official monetary policy mm-hmm. is in, you know infinity um, creation. Mm-hmm. of second layer money to sustain, right. um, you know, to sustain the system.
0: Unlimited duct tape. <laughs> that's, the that's right.
1: Really that's right.
0: And this is, so we're recording this in late May, 2021. And we just had Ray Dalio come out yesterday and say he owns Bitcoin and he'd rather, I think his quote was I'd rather own a own Bitcoin than own a bond government mm-hmm. bond. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge seal of legitimacy from, from, From a guy like that and a testament to this, the outcome of unlimited duct tape, like it is coming apart. He's also said cash is trash and a number of these things. That's where we're at today. You know, that it's just been pushed to an extreme like we've never seen it before. Um, And, it, you know, there's a line in your book that I think speaks to sort of where we're going is that. It said, if elasticity wasn't flexed when needed, a cascade of defaults could ripple through the third layer of money. I think we're talking about Beigehot when we say this. Uh, he concluded that the central bank must ultimately create second layer money in abundance when the system needs it most, underpinning the modus operandi of central banking ever since.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, Badgett basically said that you, um, when the third layer go, you know, gets into trouble, the Bank of England has to be able to purchase anything on the third layer with second layer money. And in order to do that, you have to be able to create second layer money on the spot. And that's right. what it comes down to. And that that's the dict—that's the badget dictum. And uh, it's the lender of last resort. And it's, and it's always um, central bankers have always basically held this as their as their modus operandi their their number one governing um methodology
0: mm-hmm. and then that becomes the the blueprint for the federal reserve system effectively that's right yeah i love you you open the chapter with the great quote from jp morgan that gold is money everything else is credit and Be- very simple phrase <laughs> Huge implications for understanding the history of money.
1: That's right, because um, it is the difference again between currency and commodity, or the difference between current and asset, or Mm -hmm. the difference between flow and um, stock. And, you know, flow is fine, Um, credit is necessary. All these things are important in a financial system, but none of them flow isn't money, neither is current, and um, neither is credit.
0: Yeah,
1: and and so what he's trying to say is that ultimate settlement is its own brand. And today, if you want to take custody of a Malibu mansion. That's ocean facing. Um, that has its own characteristic as uh, ultimate settlement. In a similar way that uh, you know a 1963 Ferrari would have, or in you know a similar way that a Picasso would have, and in a similar way that you know some UTXO with uh, x amount of Bitcoin in it. Mm-hmm. They're all a form of value. That um, is based in uh, stock, in, in the stock-to-flow relationship of, of things. Hmm. And so what JP Morgan is trying to say is that stock is one thing and flow and credit are another. And they're not really the same thing. And for me, my stock is gold. Yeah. That's what he's trying to say. That's what he's, he, his unit is gold. His yeah. savings unit is gold. His multi-generational unit is gold. Um, You know, if you don't care about anything other than the Pacific Ocean and surfing life, the Malibu mansion is all that you want. That's Mm -hmm. your ultimate form of settlement. Mm -hmm. And no one can take that away from you, um, you know, given your property rights in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And so we have to take these analogies of assets and apply them to Bitcoin and separate them from what we think of as a um, other forms of money, which are just forms of credit and just you know trust promises,
0: yeah, yeah, it's i you could almost say that maybe one way to delineate between the two is that money is rooted in sacrifice, like you actually have to go out and expend energy and resources to obtain gold, whereas debt is something more rooted and maybe you could say artifice in a way that you can just you can create debt on the spot, right? There's no cost to it. I can extend credit to, and it's necessary. It's not to say that it's like completely an illusion, but it's one is very easy and elastic to expand. The other is not. So but but let it, me
1: ask you this, when a current is flowing and you need to store that energy, it's no longer a current. That's right. It's in storage. It's in that's a battery. Right. Yes. And so they're, they're different.
0: Battery versus current. That's another good way to look at it. Um, And yeah, to to your point there, it's like, okay, you can choose whatever your unit of multi-generational wealth is, but so long as you're choosing in the sphere of money, you can choose right and wrong, right? You can choose a better or worse battery and your battery can be out-competed by others. So not only was it gold became the multi-generational uh, money of choice for JP Morgan, but it's also becoming that in the world, right? It's out competing all other forms of money and it, it serves as this uh, ultimate energy, monetary energy battery, if you want to use that analogy, um, which has important framing for Bitcoin's emergence later on. It's like, it's not like, sure, gold and Bitcoin could operate side by side for hundreds or maybe even a thousand years, who knows, but in the, in the long run, as economists say, it's going to coalesce towards towards one solution. So maybe you know, maybe one day someone will say the same quote but replace gold with Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it really is why we you know like to describe Bitcoin as digital gold because there's so much history in in the word gold and um, so much history of being that. Um, the best battery that exists to store current um, across time and space. Mm. And so in the future, I don't, it it doesn't matter if gold is going away. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, I've been thinking a lot about lately because the digital world isn't limited by any, um, space restrictions and so if bitcoin is the reserve currency of our digital life um gold you know gold can hang around as a a monetary metal um for the physical world um in its own way and um and it might always be viewed as that it might never uh, lose its uh Reputation, it might lose its crown in mark in terms of market capitalization to Bitcoin, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I do believe that it will, um, as the virtual world doesn't have any of those uh, same restrictions, and Bitcoin serves way more than just being a great battery for a current, um, you know, for our species. Yeah. So. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, gold could continue to exist, but still, um, Bitcoin and just the way that we're going, Bitcoin is better than gold for what we need it for as a species. And that's, and that's, and that, and that's what matters going forward. And that's why you think about Bitcoin exceeding that valuation because the market people have put uh, a certain price on gold and what its function is. And I believe Bitcoin's uh, path is, um, it, I mean, its future is much larger than what gold provides to us today, and uh, you know, therefore, um, we'll get that that famous quote from somebody rephrased in the future.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this is. I mean, if we really just boil it down to the transaction cost again, right? Like, we, like we said with with in antwerp it was lowering the transaction cost of exchange in terms of money and you know other forms of capital and that sucks in you know a lot of capital basically because people you can go and create more wealth there and you have very little frictions to trade and that's sort of what america was premised on as well like initially it was this country well not even a country it was uh decentralized sovereignty among the states. There was very low taxes, you could freely exchange, um, you know, it, it was a, a, an environment of low frictions to free trade, we would say. so that sucked in a lot of capital, created a lot of wealth. And then what you're describing there with the internet, it just seems natural that a lot of economic activity, every all the economic activity that can migrate there will because it has these extreme it's totally collapsed transaction costs. And to do business on the internet, you know, so long as so far as we can tell, it's like you're going to have to interact Bitcoin. Bitcoin is effectively the native money of of the digital domain, and it you can really kind of almost look at it just through that lens. It's like go wherever the transaction costs are lowered in terms of you know taxation, regulation, inflation, friction, whatever it is, and that's where more wealth will be created, and that's where more people will naturally converge.
1: Yeah, it's ridiculous to try to use money on the internet these days that's it's not Bitcoin. So one of the things that I've been doing a lot more these days is um, invoicing in Bitcoin. And mm. it just, I've actually, it sounds funny to say it, but I've fallen in love with Bitcoin all over again mm. this year using Bitcoin in commerce. It's like I didn't use Bitcoin in commerce a lot between when I got involved in it and this year. You know, mm-hmm. you're just stacking stats and building a position and uh, researching and writing. I'm not a Bitcoin trader, uh, frankly, suicide. Um, yeah. You know, just and you know from my perspective. But um, you know, I, I sold some books to a guy in Slovenia today, and um, he paid me on PayPal, which is great because you do not have to. I didn't have to download anything new or start a new account. I already have PayPal. Listen you pay for something in paypal it's easy it happens in one second you try to get your money out of paypal Mm. they fleece you on the fees and you can't get it out i like (laughs) tried 15 minutes refresh had to do and i couldn't get it i have to try again tomorrow because it aired out it's it's actually it's so frustrating and people are like oh but the volatility you're missing the point that's you're missing the point completely um the technology is so advanced in bitcoin it's instant. Like I used, I've i used Lightning so much this year. Instant settlement. I right. don't need to close that channel. Yeah. You know, and if I do, I can do it and, and I get my money, you know, in 10 minutes. It's like right. you just, it, um, there is such an advance to an, a native money. PayPal and these things, they might happen on the internet in, um, in appearance, but oh my lord, that is not internet-based money. Uh, it is um, it is the same disaster behind um, behind the screen yeah. that um, that our you know two thousand and five you know two thousand eight financial crisis showed us um, that we have. It's like it's the same system that's behind there, and it is totally archaic. And I'll just tell you this: trading treasuries and treasury repo um, at the highest level, uh, you, but it would be shocked that they're still faxing things to each other to settle, to settle stuff. It's like, Whoa. uh, you know, hundred million dollar yeah. wire and it's like, I have to send you a fax or I have to like print something and uh, scan it and ca- And it's like, you know, what year am I in? What year am I, have you used the lightning network? No. And it, so, you know, the, um, the advance in technology is—it's uh, so large that it—it's undeniable, yeah. and it's also why uh, central banks have, you know, gone all in on central bank digital currencies because they realize that the rails are still these faxes um, that you know you're never going to be able to get out of it. Let's at least modernize, um, you know, the infrastructure of the dollar. So, you know, that people can get their money, you know, from point A to point B, which is, it's still super di- difficult. I've done a lot of international um, transactions this year. You know, I have to give my checking account number to people in, you know, XYZ countries. Yeah, It sucks, man. It's yeah. like, it just the technology sucks. Yeah. And I wish that I could invoice everyone in Bitcoin now. And if I need dollars to pay the bills, like I got to buy more books because mm-hmm. I get orders. I got to pay dollars for those books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sell it. I'll do it myself. I'll sell it mm-hmm. and I'll buy the books with the dollars. Let me handle that. Let me invoice in Bitcoin.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it's it's great point. that it, The whole point of money is to get, again, something that's trust minimized. And all these layers between us and our money are just their headaches, frankly. So we had the... The United States, you know, declare their independence from Britain. Uh, In your book, you talk about the second Congress of the U.S. They passed the Coinage Act in 1792, establishing the dollar as the country's official unit of account. And one dollar was equal to one dollar was equal to both 1.6 grams of gold and 24 grams of silver. And then. So for a while the united states resisted the implementation of a central bank so maybe we could just talk about that a little bit sort of what the principles the us was founded on and why it was resistant to the central bank which i'm guessing has to do with it. it's a, you know it's citizens experience with the bank of england
1: yeah and you know it's also the states versus federal uh, debate that was very uh, intense during well it still is uh you know 250 years later but especially at the beginning of the country um you know a large debate was how much power should we concentrate in the federal government versus how much power should we leave with the states and a central bank is um it hits two things first it hits the idea that um the federal government is this own its own powerful entity that is going to t- make all these decisions. That itself was highly politically contentious early on. Uh, you know, ergo, um, opposition to the central bank, to mm-hmm. the idea of a central bank. But also, um, central bank is a banker's bank, right? It 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 makes the money spigot. Uh, concentrated in one place Mm -hmm. and it centralizes the system from that perspective. So, um, coming from a culture, a pre declaration of independence culture monetarily that was decentralized. So a decentralized monetary culture, a monetary culture that, Um, basically was a Mm free-for-all right with banks issuing currencies um, wampum being used as currency Mm -hmm. gold uh, coins being used as currency Spanish silver dollars uh, being used totally decentralized to now a proposal to make everything centralized and I'm sure um, local bankers in the South, were not thrilled about a central bank in the North. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are lots of sources of opposition to a central bank in the early days of America, and uh, I couldn't even um, pinpoint one in particular. But if you look at the Federalist Papers debates or um, you know the Hamilton debates. What you're looking at there is uh, how much power is concentrated in the federal government versus how much are is it these United States mm-hmm. as opposed to the United States uh, you know as a, as an entity it's it's is it the United States or are these or these states that that uh, decided to unite mm-hmm. and um, I think that's you know at the crux of the debate early on.
0: Yeah, the, the contention between just where power resides, right? Centralized or decentralized um, and what specific If the powers. central
1: bank was proposed in Virginia, you know, is the debate, uh, does the debate go a different way, you know, yeah. perhaps? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I guess, so there were two central banks, both of their charter, 20-year charters expired. Um. And then finally we had the federal reserve incepted in 1913 and in your book, you distinguish between wholesale money, which are actual fed reserves and retail money, which are, you know, federal note bank notes that we're accustomed to. Um, and you, you know, you make a very important point that federal reserve, they're really only managing the money supply through the reserves themselves. So actually issuing reserves to top tier banks that then through the money multiplier effect, to create, expand, or contract the money supply. Um, so, what the Federal Reserve? I mean, maybe just talk a little bit about the inception. You know, what was the, the impetus behind that? Um, where was it? What was it originally intended to do? And how was its original structure intended to be versus what it's become today?
1: Yeah, it came to be because of the panic of 1907 was basically the last straw in a series of financial panics. Um, there was now enough political clout to ram something through um, banking failures and, um, you know, acute recessions due to banking collapse and financial crises, um, they had become very common. And um it, it paved the way for the Fed in in 1913. So, commission was set up after the financial panic of 1907, and um, they were, you know, Aldrich and, and uh, was able to push this through. Um, basically, looking. To other central banks in Europe, and showing how a central bank can help assuage crises and um, normalize things, and it can be a good political tool as well, and uh, something that we need here in the United States. So um, I think it was, uh, um, you know, we like to talk about the the late winter holiday passage of the Federal Reserve where not many senators were present mm-hmm. and uh, ramming something through. But even without that, I think that um, you were going to get a, a third central bank mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. Now, what was it created for? It was created for financial stability um, and to be a, a banker's bank. And that's really what it comes down to. So it was trying to achieve stability by being the bank that banks in the United States could turn to and, you know, to furnish that, to furnish an elastic currency is is, is in the original Federal Reserve Act. And so there's, there's a few words that are important there, furnish and elastic, um, you know, elastic meaning that this is going to be a fractionally reserved system that can expand when needed. And it didn't even say necessarily that this is at the central banking level. They're really implying that this is going to be at the central banking and at the commercial banking level, the elasticity. Mm -hmm. And to furnish it means you're the one that is going to uh, goose the system's elasticity when it needs to be goosed. And um, so that was the intent. And so I don't think that that ever changed. Um, that's still the intent for them to be the reserve bank of the banking system. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why the policy is QE. It's reserve creation today. Um, and so it did evolve through time, especially in the way that its balance sheet was made up as it started with um, you know mostly gold, and then gold dwindled down toward the the minimum ranges uh, through time and then eventually uh, disappeared. Um, uh, An important early change to the Federal Reserve Act was that uh, once World War I started, the Fed purchased U.S. Treasury bonds, so they needed to change the legislation so that the Fed could hold U.S. Treasuries. that obviously had big implications, um, but that could have happened in World War II if that's when the first time that you know a crisis uh, or the government needed to call upon the central bank. Um, so that could have happened later, um, but yeah, I, I really don't think uh, you know the theme has change is basically apply band aids when needed uh, was the intent, and um, it's very much the case today.
0: Yeah. So then the, the depiction in the book is, you know, I have gold U.S. treasuries at the apex, the Federal Reserve is the first intermediate layer. They're issuing reserves, which are wholesale money to banks and also also issuing notes, which is retail money. You then have private sector banks, which are custodying, I guess, both reserves and notes. That's and right. really, really creating their own notes, right? Because they're relending customer deposits through the money multiplier effect. And that's that's the number of tiers at the private sector bank level, and then finally you have deposits, which are what we are the the money we hold in checking and savings accounts, effectively.
1: Right, and and with the Fed, what happened was the banks issuing their own notes. Then that was now made illegal. That was you yep. the banks couldn't have their own cash circulating. They were allowed to have their own deposits. That, mm-hmm. um, you know. Circulate throughout the financial system as banks wire money to each other and settle, you know, in their own accounts, you know, in in an in an interbank way, um, and yeah, the the private sector banks their their uh, job was to provide elasticity to the system by lending and creating deposits, and then they use the uh, Federal Reserve notes and um, Federal Reserve deposits, which are called the reserves in the system as uh, the wholesale money that they use to, um, I'm sorry, they use the reserves as a wholesale money to back the retail money that they issue to the public, which are deposits. Mm -hmm. The Fed has their own retail money notes, but uh, you know, Those had a place in the old financial system. They don't have a place anymore. The Fed doesn't use uh, notes in any sort of monetary policy way. Um, They're actually almost frustrated that when they print notes, um, they get hoarded by people (laughs) abroad because it's the hardest money that they can get their hands on um, with uh, dumpster fire currency regimes.
0: Yeah, right. Makes sense. And that set the stage for the Fed to retire gold effectively, right, Um, which is the title of the fifth chapter in your book. And talk about this swarm of money creation that occurred during the roaring 20s, it was really, this was antagonistic to gold's constraining function, its disciplinary function. So there was more demand for more elasticity, more credit creation. And I guess it started to create the pressure to separate the dollar from gold in the long run.
1: Yeah, and the the credit creation happened on the third layer, which is which is an interesting part of the story because the third layer of money is being issued by these commercial banks, which are setting their own reserve ratios and uh, you know in a wild west sort of way. So they're not governed by any disciplinary constraint of gold whatsoever, mm-hmm. and. Um, and this is, you know, in an era when they didn't really have deposit insurance or anything like that. And so with all the money creation and um, and when the bust finally came, you had thousands of bank closures. Mm-hmm. And that was even post Federal Reserve, right? The central bank existed, yet you still had a collapse in uh, the banking sector, as banks went over leveraged and they weren't able to make, you know, uh, they were run on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And, um, so it, it actually brought about this idea that we need a retail money that the public feels is safe. So they don't cause systemic collapse when, uh, leverage creeps into the system. And so, the FDI insurance um, giving, you know, I think it started, I believe, at $5,000 on the account, 2500 Then they quickly increased it to $5,000. Your first $5,000 in the 1930s, no matter what bank it was at, as long as it had an FDIC insurance policy, your money was safe right, uh, per the government. And so, that's one of their first big Band-Aids. And that came from the government, it didn't come from the Fed um, necessarily, but uh, the government realized that we need this this first Band-Aid or this, um, you know, an insurance apparatus to make sure that banking runs are not commonplace. Mm-hmm. So trying to rid the motivation to run on banks was a big thing um, and, a, and a response to all that uh, roaring 20s money creation
0: yeah to give peace of mind right to to market actors which makes sense and then we get into executive order 6102 where the private ownership of gold was actually illegalized uh, it was punishable by up to 10 years in prison i think or by fine and th- then this led to what you describe as this immense devaluation because, it, well, they illegalized it, then they devalued gold where um, they let the price increase from $20.67 an ounce to $35 an ounce. So they were devaluing the dollar actually, um, I should say, against gold. And then this immense devaluation was a surgical strike in an ongoing worldwide currency war wherein countries attempted to cheapen their currencies as much as possible relative to their trade partners. Their goal was to attract foreign demand by having the cheapest prices. So now we're really getting into this game theory of fiat currency, which is the race to debase. Um, and it, you know, that's still going on today, right? We're still—that's what's happening all over the world today. As governments are printing money and then sort of shaking their finger across the aisle at other countries, saying, "Hey, you shouldn't debase too quickly." Um, And it's just destructive. You know, it's kind of a self-destructive dynamic.
1: They all take turns and asset prices go up. Mm -hmm. And people still want to deny a correlation um, between uh, the round of currency debasement and uh, the race to the bottom and uh, increasing asset prices. But if you look at the, here's the best, i I always say price is truth because, uh, you know, as a, as a chartist and something, I'm only looking at the price to give me all the signals. Mm-hmm. What do you think about a price chart between the dollar and the euro that chops between um, parity and uh, 140 for 20 years? That's just a seesaw. Yeah. And so, what happens at each end of the seesaw? Trillions are created in each of those currencies. So the the euro versus U.S. dollar, not euro dollar, yeah. the euro versus USD exchange rate chops between this range every few years. It goes up and it goes down and again. And then the other central bank announces QE, and the other central bank. Meanwhile, stocks go like this, real estate goes like this, and Bitcoin goes like this. Yes, you know, parabolic. Right. Yeah. Um, so the price is the truth. One is a seesaw. One is a steady ascent. And what, and why is it a seesaw? Because it's a, they take turns. Yeah. You cheapen, then I cheapen, then you cheapen, then I cheapen. And, and meanwhile, other things go up and you can all, you can see it all in the price.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's oscillating, but directionally everything is they're depreciating against gold and hard assets, real estate, Bitcoin, et cetera. Right. Um, and so it's, man, it is such a tricky game for people because it is, you're playing with economic perceptions, right? People think it's insidious and deceptive because people are thinking in dollars or euros and they're like, oh, my portfolio is going up. My home's more expensive. My salary is going up, whatever. But all the while, in real terms, you're actually being, there's a value being siphoned away through inflation effectively.
1: Right. Or my European or American vacation is the same as it was, at, what it was eight years ago. So, <clears throat> so there's no, um, you know, there's no worry about my currency. Right. Now things, things go up in price all around the world um, and things like that, but you're not attributing that to a bad exchange rate. Right. Because you're, you know, Euro versus UDSC is the, you know, exchange rate is the same. It was, as yeah. it was. So um, it's hiding in know, plain sight. In past, it's hiding yeah. in plain sight. That's right.
0: And the, the the more percentage of assets you're holding, the less uh, exposure you have to this, clearly. You're, you know, your asset price increases offset the inflationary um, dilution, let's say. But it doesn't change. Like, there's just, this is what almost want to like i've almost got to the point where you want to bang your head against the wall when you talk to what do you think smart people are about inflation and they're like it's not there it's not happening but here it is like it's in broad daylight you just have to actually think about how you're looking at it like what you're looking through i think a lot of people just kind of let they just think in dollars and they don't think below that they don't think below the dollar which is yeah
1: and i and And I also am a big fan of the deflation narrative. I talk about it a Mm -hmm. lot because I think it's, it's there as well. Um, There's an inflation narrative that, um, you know, I can play up for sure, you know, but I like to just talk about the asset prices, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because uh, consumer price index and things like that, they, they measure their own things. Everyone's inflation rate is different. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, if you have a taste for um, you know, luxurious, uh, you know, luxury items and all those sort of things, inflation is there. If you have a taste for, um, you know, fast food, then, you know, you might not see the same inflation that that everybody else does. And you know what, the inflation narrative is important, just as important as the deflation narrative for Bitcoin. And I think that that's something that yeah. um, isn't explored a lot. But the fact that certain things are going up in price and are attributed to a bad unit of account. Um, You know, that's on fire. Yeah. And um, you know, other things that keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, like technology, driving it forward, yeah. driving people to like more of an internet based existence. That is also a supporter of um, this narrative that, we only need Bitcoin as the online currency. Uh, we don't need government currencies on the internet type of thing they're yeah. both they're both bullish for Bitcoin. Right. Um, everything is bullish for Bitcoin yeah. if're we're, if we're being honest with each other and um, but I I, I I feel your frustration and bang you know banging your head against the wall <laughs> when people aren't able to see the inflation um, but it's a very narrow view of inflation it also is why i didn't use the word inflation once in the book i don't know if you noticed oh, that because because inflation as a word is poorly defined right and has a wide range of definitions That's right. and i didn't want to spend uh you know, I didn't want to spend ten, 10 pages breaking down all the different ways that inflation is and then convincing people that my way of using the word is going to be the right way for the rest of the book. Uh, I think you lose a lot of the readers, especially because of what you're saying. You just you're banging your head against the wall because people you say the word inflation and people are just so opinionated about it. Yeah. You can't get them to stop. uh believing that the way and so when i thought about that i said i better not use the word even once and so i'm i'm proud of the fact that uh, inflation and deflation are not you won't see those words in layered money i
0: think that was a smart move i did actually didn't notice until as soon as you said it though it, it crystallized I was like wow he really didn't talk about it the whole time but you covered all the impact of it you know like in, in the terminology of, of first layer versus second layer money and elasticity and yeah, I think inflation may be one of the most successful euphemisms of all time.
1: Yeah, and that's why I, that's why I don't I don't love to debate about inflation even then because like it's so nuanced. There's so many different. Like I could get I can go on a rant about monetary inflation and how it's you know rampant and extremely destructive, mm-hmm. and I can go on a, on one that says that you know we are in a very deflationary environment because of demographic factors and technology. Yes. And I believe both, and yes. um, but you know you, you'll you'll lose the reader in yeah. in, a, in a lot of those things, and uh, it's something that I've wanted to write, um, just something like on inflation. Yeah. So we'll see if we'll see if I can pump something out.
0: Yeah, it is so nuanced and easy to get lost, especially once you start considering whether you're discussing the money supply itself or the price level. And to your further point on the price level purely subjective. It's more like a coefficient. It's like what are you trying to buy? What are you aiming at? Right. You could say inflation
1: Everyone's inflation rate is different.
0: Exactly. Based on it's as subjective as value, right? It's like whatever you value, that mix of things you value uh determines your inflation coefficient, if you will. And I the tech deflation narrative is very important too. And it almost is extending in my opinion the runway of central banking because we have digital tools and technology, mostly, other other technologies as well, but creating much more, making us much more productive, creating much more economic surplus in the world. And if you consider from a first principle standpoint, when they're increasing the money supply, they're basically just harvesting that economic surplus. So if prices on average were going to go down 10% due to this productivity gain, but they've increased the money supply such that they go up 2% on average instead, they've harvested that 12%. But because people can't see what would otherwise be, right? There's no, way, there's no way to see what would otherwise be. Basically, you couldn't see what the price level would be on a purely hard money standard. So there's no point of comparison. And then we just get indoctrinated into this belief that CPI is inflation. And then the determinants <laughs> that go into that calculation purposefully exclude anything that changes in price. It's like, the metric designed to measure changes in price is excluding the things that change in price. <laughs> and you just get, I mean, create, it is so incredibly frustrating to talk about. Um, I probably take a page out of your book and just <laughs> avoid it altogether. Um, so maybe we can shift gears a bit here now and get into, and I'm so glad your book talked about this. Most people ignore it completely. Most people are totally ignorant of it. Um, I've read very few books that touch on it much at all. They don't usually typically go very deep. The best thing i had heard on this previously was Eurodollar University, which I'm sure you probably listened to on Macro Voices with Jeff Snyder. He does a great job really going into the the details of the Eurodollar system. And to your point earlier, we have to disentangle. This is not the euro currency of the European Union, this is the euro dollar system, which I guess I'll describe as like an emergent um, derivatives market for offshore dollars. And then I'll just throw it over to you. Maybe you could just kind of walk us through the euro dollar system at a high level and how it impacts these hierarchies of money.
1: It is an emergent uh, derivative system of the dollar. And um, it happened. Offshore originally. And uh, yeah, the Euro dollar story is a very important one and one that's not told very well. Jeff Snyder's Euro dollar university on Macro Horizons was fantastic. I strongly recommend people go listen. I acknowledge Jeff Snyder um, and his work. So uh, thank you to Jeff for all the research that he did. And the stories that he told in Eurodollar University were pivotal in, you know, my deep dive and trying to figure out where this system came from and why it came into be. Um, And in my opinion, you know, what it is, dollars were becoming the world tool to participate in global trade. And... You couldn't get them very easily in London and Paris. Um, And so banks in Europe decided to issue, issue dollars to their customers in a deposit form. So obviously they can't print Federal Reserve notes in, you know, at the Barclays Bank, but they can issue USD deposit to their customer. They did that without asking anybody that's why it's an emergent system it's because clients in europe needed dollars they needed to borrow money they needed to borrow dollars european banks said okay here are some dollars and we'll issue a deposit to you and go see where you can spend those dollars mm-hmm. and they were able to spend them by transferring them to other european banks like interbank transactions in europe were starting to be denominated in dollars So you have this parallel, separate dollar system happening abroad at the same time where you have an onshore US dollar system governed by the Federal Reserve and private sector banks in the United States that have uh, ratios and all these requirements and have interchangeability between their reserves and cash, Federal Reserve notes. Mm -hmm. Um, None of that existed in Europe because they weren't trying to use it for that. They were trying to use it to participate in global trade. And so it was almost an innocent beginning to the euro dollar emergent, as you describe it Mm -hmm. and derivative in that um, it held uh, it was called a dollar in Europe because when people, tried to price Euro dollars versus U.S. onshore dollars, the price was par. Mm-hmm. People said it's it's the same. I think it's the same.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Even though qualitatively we know it wasn't the same because it didn't fall into the Federal Reserve's hierarchy of money, nor did it fall into their lender of last resort apparatus. Mm-hmm. And the system blew up in popularity because – people trusted it as a unit and a thing that they could use. And that all came to a head in 2008 where the financial system realized that onshore U.S. dollars are not the same thing as offshore euro dollars. They're, in fact, completely different. Offshore euro dollars are um, a time bomb. Mm. And unless we, the Federal Reserve – issue a central bank swap line to the european central bank in which the euros in which the ecb can create euros out of thin air post them as collateral to us we will then lend them dollars infinite because they can you know ecb can create as many euros we can issue them dollars and then the ecb can take those dollars and funnel them through their domestic banking systems in order to put a bandage on the euro dollar mm-hmm. and its fragility because if we provide a liquidity line we have basically nationalized the euro dollar system at the federal reserve level because of that bandaid that we decided to apply
0: mm-hmm.
1: with the introduction of a this is a late 2007, uh, you know, impetus where we start to get this idea that the euro dollar is in is in a lot of trouble, right? And so um, the ECB is now an arm of the Fed because of this. People right. don't understand that. They don't understand that it's an arm of the Fed now, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that the ECB has to ask the Fed for permission to do things. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Christine Lagarde is doing her own thing. She yeah. doesn't have to call yeah. J-PAL to say, can I do this? They make their own policy. But right. when shit hits the fan, the Fed has to come and lend dollars against euro collateral right. to the East, which is a mirage in itself. And um, part of why the dollar is so ephemeral today, you just can't you can't put a definition on it because they've they've um, they've spread themselves so thin in terms of what a dollar really is, and uh, all of that is um, why we need Bitcoin to provide uh, what's called the off-ramp. Right? What does everybody say? It's the off-ramp. It's the exit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the exit because that pyramid that i build throughout the book through the first 6 chapters so many bandages on it it's so old and aged i wish i had used that word aged in the book that um all you want to do is leave it you don't want to like put a better bandage or or research bandage technology <laughs> Or you, you don't want to do that. You just want to get out. Yeah. You don't want to ascend to the top because the top is U.S. treasuries. Yeah. Do you really need that?
0: So this Euro dollar system, the way I think about it, maybe you could help me if this is the wrong way to think about it. It's almost like a pyramid scheme squared. It's like the pyramid scheme that the, Federal Reserve is monopolizing and controlling this own hierarchy that is the US dollar with, you know, just treasuries at its apex, essentially. But there was so much demand for money abroad, unmet demand, we could say, uh, that the free market, in a way, sort of created this second-layer pyramid scheme or pyramid scheme on top of a pyramid scheme. Um, that is the Euro dollar market, just derivative of. Um, the first layer Federal Reserve Pyramid. And to your point, it's not that Christine Lagarde is beholden to Jerome Powell necessarily, but the policy of layer one directly impacts the policy of layer two, and they're they're now dealing in US dollar derivatives, which are which is a derivative of policy of the US Fed. And So there's that. That's like a lot to let sink in. It's like this thing is it's replicating itself and and becoming even more elastic and fragile in the process Uh, and more opaque, I guess would be another really important point. Like when Snyder talks about this, he's like, look, I'm giving you the best data we can get, but we really don't know. We don't know how big it is. You don't know where it is. Like it's really just kind of a, a big dark monster in a way. And I thought one of the other interesting things about this was that, You said part of the impetus for the development of this market was the Soviet demand for dollars, but they simultaneously demanded privacy of those deposits because they wanted to reduce their counterparty risk to the US government. So there's this free market impulse towards one money, right? That's what caused gold to become money. That's what effectively causes, um, I guess, Contributes to the U.S. dollar being world reserve currency. Clearly, they pass laws that affect that as well. But um, people want to denominate and think in one money. It's just simpler and it's more economic, right? As we talked about with with zero and all the, the developments of money throughout history. So it's like it's almost as if the Federal Reserve has this legal monopoly, but the free market forces surrounding it sort of created this second layer of that was satisfying unmet demand. And to me, like when I, when I was going through Eurodollar University and, then, and reading your book as well, it's like I, I sense that the free market is trying to call forth something like Bitcoin almost. There's this quote in your book. It says, former Federal Reserve board member and prolific author on monetary economics, Charles Kindleberger, described Eurodollars as a product of the natural demand for the free flow of capital around the world which is a system that a Bitcoin would provide. And then he further says that this suggests that the forces of integration in the world of goods markets or markets for people and of the markets for capital are stronger than political boundaries which divide countries. So this demand for integration, this free market impulsion was sort of just flowing around the legal artifice of the Federal Reserve and that's how we ended up with the euro dollar system.
1: And Kindleberger is a genius. Um, I would recommend people go check out some of the um, references that I put of his. Uh, he was definitely ahead of his time and uh, a great monetary historian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he said that, I had to put that quote in the book because it is Bitcoin. And it, it, it shows you that the Eurodollar wasn't created out of malice or corruption or pyramid scheming. Mm-hmm. It's just that people wanted to move commerce forward and they needed uh, uh, an easier-to-use tool to do that. And the euro dollar was that solution. And to go back to Russia, you know, the Soviet Union doesn't want to domicile their deposits in New York. They'd prefer London. Shanghai preferred Paris. It's not that um, you know it's it's not just the demand for money. It's also political.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's there's both of these sources of demand uh, for euro dollars and um that's why we ended up with this whole system and it it's not it's not even widely recognized that much but um i think in at least the central banking circles they realize that uh, a permanent swap line between the fed and the ecb is a staple of our monetary system now
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah to echo that point there's this Other aspect of demand, which was demand for sovereignty over these funds as well, right? Soviet depositors did not want to leave their money in New York, given the political tensions between during the Cold War. Effectively, so to be in London was a more gave them more optionality, more confidence, more sovereignty over their money, but still allowed them to be in the hardest money available to them, which was the dollar.
1: Right. We talked about call options already today. You know, what call option do you value more? One that you know you can execute or one that you're scared you can execute.
0: Right. Yes.
1: And so uh, you you even pay a premium for that call option. You know, options theory, you can apply this here into the game theory. So uh, you could even pay a premium for that deposit because of um, your confidence in being able to execute.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was Friedman describing this system. He said, it's all born from the bookkeeper's pen. That's right. But it, yeah, maybe when I say pyramid scheme, that maybe that does impart the sense of intentionality. Like some evil guys in a room sat around and said, let's do this, but that's not at all how it happens. It's it's the band aid thing again. They're just There's demand. Certain players try to meet that demand in a certain way. And before you know it, this whole, um, complex just sort of develops that we now call the euro dollar system
1: yeah it's a it's a it's not a pyramid scheme it's a fractionally reserved pyramid Mm -hmm. um and that in itself can be fra can be very fragile yeah and uh you know when you step into the euro dollar space there's nothing at the top of the pyramid itself which makes right. it a little bit of a scheme for sure but it's just an absence of um, a monetary reality and that came to a head in in 2008
0: yeah and so the yeah it's your point there's nothing at the the apex because it's it's treasuries it's debt right and
1: no but even in the euro dollar it's just the loans that are on the asset side of the bank balance sheet of of the london banks right and so that's why i put a question mark on the top on the apex of that euro dollar pyramid in the book because you don't i mean it's just loans to whoever borrowed the money yeah Uh, we don't we don't really know what that is it's not even it's not even as good as u.s treasury debt you know backing the system
0: yeah yeah and even (laughs) that's a great point it's lower quality debt. But even in the old super high quality, the US treasury market, which is the risk-free asset of the world, it's still debt-based ultimately. And you have this quote in your book where treasuries themselves are a form of credit. Their credit worthiness comes from the assets of the US government and the power to collect taxes from its citizens. So it's trust instead of holding something like gold or Bitcoin, which is trust minimization. And that can that gets us into this treasury repo market which i thought you did a great job expanding upon um maybe you could just talk a bit about what is treasury repo market and then how does that what's its contribution to the the great financial uh sorry the great recession of 2008 is that what we call it now
1: um, uh, people love crash. to call it the, the GFC, the great GFC. financial crisis yeah. of 2008. Um, and I like 2007 to 2009 mm-hmm. better because uh, it did start in 2007. Calling it 2008 misses the point that mm-hmm. this started in 2007 in August when the euro dollar system started to show um, some some real problems in trust.
0: Which and, very few people talk about, by the way, and I'd love for you to expand upon that. People often think it's just, oh, subprime real estate. That was a whole issue. Not at all. This is a Eurodollar issue.
1: It's a Eurodollar issue. Subprime mortgages were the debt that triggered a lot of liquidations mm-hmm. and brought about a realization that uh, the Eurodollar system is leveraged beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Um, so subprime debt uh, and and bad mortgages that were made in the United States triggered but didn't cause the panic in in, in 2008, 2007. So, and the indication was that uh, the LIBOR interest rate, which is the interest rate on interbank deposits in the Eurodollar system started to spike when the onshore Fed funds rate didn't. And um, that was the indication that these two assets or these two units weren't the same anymore per the market. And that price separation was uh, the start of the crisis. That happened in August of 2007.
0: Yeah. And so it was, you say subprime mortgages were a catalyst, but it was exacerbated by the excessive leverage of the euro dollar system.
1: Absolutely. Well, the, the, the leverage of the euro dollar system was what was unsustainable. Mm-hmm. The subprime mortgage crisis um, brought that forward because some of the assets were those bad assets. And so when the asset price collapses, um, you can forget about the, the fractionally reserved liabilities that they have issued against them. And so that's kind of uh, what happened there. You need to go back to Treasury Repo. was another form of money um you have the stock of u.s treasuries and now that it can be pledged for collateral borrowed against and the money that's lent to you is now as good as any other checking account deposit so it's it's a new type of money that circulated with the on par with the other types of money out there. So, mm-hmm. treasure repo dollars, which it's just a, it's just dollar number three. You got dollar number one, the onshore dollar, dollar number two, the euro dollar, dollar number three is the treasure repo dollar, and everyone's using all of them mm-hmm. as the same thing around the world. You know, talk about monetary inflation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, the repo, treasure repo, the introduction of treasure repo as. Um, as a par money was um, it brought about more leverage to the system. And so it also kind of uh, a little bit obsoleted deposit banking for the larger institutions where now they didn't have to um, uh, get retail deposits in order to build up a reserve to, to lend money against. Um, But rather they just needed a stock of treasury securities and they could borrow 98% of uh, the price and leverage that however they wanted because the dollars were fungible with other dollars. So the fungibility of treasury repo dollars is one of the sources of um, the expansion of money supply mm-hmm. during the 70s that we can track. And so there's a a paper that I reference about that um, as well, where we can see um, the, the the direct correlation between the increase in treasury repo and uh, the increase in the money supply, dollar money supply, when the Fed still knew how to measure it. They don't know how to measure it anymore, um, which is a, a fun part of history. But um, at the time, uh, they were able to directly correlate the two.
0: So that, that meant this repo market was effectively a mechanism for debt monetization. is that accurate to say?
1: It's a way for the U.S. government to issue debt a lot faster than they would otherwise be able to, mm. because now you can park the debt on the bank's balance sheet without a charge to the bank, because they can borrow ninety-eight percent of the money uh, for next to nothing.
0: Mm.
1: So it, it 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 it's it's more that it um, it facilitates the issuance of debt. Right. QE monetizes the debt. I know yep. you know. Um, that you agree with that, but it's, um, it's all, it's almost more about the liquidity of the debt, right? It increases the liquidity of the debt and it increases um, the stock of debt that you can issue because there's now a market where the debt itself is pristine collateral in the system and uh, having the collateral property now at the treasury us treasury level, um, like, set the stage for a post gold or it, you know, it's correlated with the post gold world where we needed a new form of um, perfect collateral and yeah. uh treasury served that function going forward, post, post gold.
0: So the, the outcome of this was more elasticity at higher layer monies, right?
1: That's, that's absolutely right. Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. And so just to get back a little bit on the, the great financial crash crash, you know, Again, common conventional wisdom. It was a subprime mortgage issue. Clearly, the Eurodollar system was a very large component of it. Probably would not have happened without the excessive leverage in the Eurodollar system. We, I guess we could tie both of those together and say that really, and this is just Austrian business cycle theory. They're both rooted in, they're both a fiat problem. The great financial crash really was... The lending criteria that were relaxed such that banks took on excessive risk. And then the um the you know, as we touched on the expansion of the euro dollar system, these were both premised on the existence of a legal monopoly in money. Like the reason this thing was so bad is a is a consequence of fiat currency. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, it's um you know, the fiat currency and uh, the abuse of it is something that – the the abuse of being able to issue it is something that I think Bitcoiners struggle a lot with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's why, you know, it's why when you look at it over a longer-term time horizon, how could you justify storing your, your work in dollars? Mm-hmm it's very difficult um, for Bitcoiners to do that and uh, I think it's because of this uh, this issue that you're there that you're bringing up
0: mm. yeah so you also in the book you do a great job of explaining this is where things start to get complex because we're getting <laughs> into the modern age of money uh, this relationship between, money market funds, T-bills, treasuries, treasury repo lending, commercial paper, all of these become components in the modern hierarchy of money. Um, and then, which I guess, I'll, I'll try to roughly describe it here, the image you have. So you have US treasuries at the apex, you have Federal Reserve, banks, and money market funds is the next layer. You then have wholesale money, retail money in terms of reserves and notes. You have treasury repo market also this next layer and shares and money market funds. Then in the next layer below that, you have US banks and money market funds and the banks have deposits and the money market funds have shares. Um, Yeah, it's becoming bigger and <laughs> has a lot more elasticity and a lot more f- fragility. And th- those consequences are realized time and time again in the real world, right? Great financial crash, March twenty twenty, um, and that didn't even include the euro dollar system, which I guess the euro dollar system would be its own complex built sort of outside and and or on top of that or below that, I guess you would say. So what then happened? Like, what we have this? We had two thousand eight. We had this run up the pyramid, I guess is what it was. And then they absolutely, when there's a run up the pyramid, then they try to actually um, ease the lower layers of the pyramid through all these, these machinations we've explored. Uh, where do we go from there? Like what I, do you, do we go straight into 2020 from there? Like what happened in March, 2020, or is there more to tell in the, in the great financial crash?
1: You know, um The way that I wanted to frame the book was that there are two worlds. There's a pre-August 2007 world and a post-August 2007 world. Mm -hmm. And what happened in August 2007 is that the price of LIBOR separated from the price of onshore deposits. Mm -hmm. And that broke the system forever Mm -hmm. because it showed that um, half the system is built on a mirage, And um, But we can't acknowledge that by letting it fail. We have to support it forever. And so, no, there's nothing different about the pandemic panic um, because the solutions were the same and the problems were similar in that liquidity needed to be provided by the Fed Mm. to the ECB, to the treasury market, to the treasury repo market, both, like mm-hmm. they needed to do QE, which is buy. They also needed to provide repo to those that already owned it, mm-hmm. but didn't have the money. They never had the money to pay for it in the first place. They just borrow it overnight, every night to pay for that stock. And when they can't roll the debt, what happens? That's it. You, yeah, you get your treasury seized mm. through repo. I mean that's what repo is. They reap, they re it's not re, repossessed like yeah. a, a car repo, but it's a repurchase agreement. You don't you can't execute the repurchase of the treasury, so you lose the treasury. Yeah, and um, that's what wasn't allowed to happen at the Fed um, in 2020. So that's why I set up the euro dollar story so so heavily in the book because really. Once you understand what happened in 2007, uh, it's it's in permanent disrepair the dollar system, and mm. um, there is no fix. Uh, there is no reverse aging technology in uh, the central <laughs> banking world. Yeah. Um, there's only Bitcoin, and um, there's only uh, novel first principles thinking, which is what you're you're all about. Um, And so from first principles, you have to get away from the current balance sheet hierarchy because it's broken. Mm. And so you need a new hierarchy because uh, it is my conclusion that money is inherently hierarchical as concluded Perry Merling. It's uh, a quote that I use in the book. And if it's inherently hierarchical, uh, then Bitcoin should be hierarchical too, right? And yes, it is. People hold... Bitcoin on exchanges and when they don't want that counterparty trust, they withdraw and settle, but they still keep it on exchanges. It's not like they don't, they still use second layer Bitcoin from that perspective. You have hundred percent risk to the balance sheet of that exchange. That's fine. People do it. And then they settle. And so Bitcoin is inherently hierarchical because it's money. Mm -hmm. And, and so looking forward, you need a a new pyramid, a new system, a new hierarchy, and it's obvious to me that Bitcoin is on the first layer of whatever that pyramid looks like. Will it be joined by something else? Will it be joined by gold? Will gold never be a part of that? you know i in my opinion, Bitcoin is alone up there at that mm-hmm. apex mm-hmm. Um, other cryptocurrencies have value because they have a price relationship with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason why they exist, because you can settle them for Bitcoin. That doesn't make them a first layer of money. It actually makes them a second layer of money. Mm-hmm. And um, if you actually look at, fast forward a few years, if central bank digital currencies are able to convert into Bitcoin, Uh, or like trade for Bitcoin in a way in which um, there's price transparency, you can now argue, even though no central bank might own Bitcoin at that point, you could still argue that Bitcoin is on the first layer of money by itself and that other fiat currencies only exist because their CBDCs have a price in Mm. Bitcoin. And that's when the pyramid shifts. That's what I tried to forecast in my book in my book's conclusion and look to the future. And, um, you know, I marketed this book as a monetary history and as a explainer for Bitcoin. um, But I haven't uh, marketed it that hard as a diagnosis of central bank digital currencies and why they will succumb to Bitcoin in the future. I just, I just threw that in there and (laughs) let people, let people realize it as, uh, as they go forward. Um, And I think that central banks will realize that um, the only thing that they can do is let their currency trade against bitcoin otherwise um, the market might not give it a price at all uh, like what happened in zimbabwe for example
0: right right right. yeah so the you know bitcoin being the base layer to its own hierarchy but it could also at some point start to subsume the existing hierarchy at least marginally if it's ever acquired by a central bank as a reserve asset, right then it becomes
1: it's, it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even have to be acquired by a res- by a central bank as a reserve asset hmm. because um, if you've denominated in Bitcoin, Bitcoin is already at your apex. And that is already the case for people around the world, for corporations, for not for governments publicly yet, Mm -hmm. um, but for plenty of people, family offices, whatever, whatever have it, um, you know, giants like, um, you know, these investment houses that are starting to, you know, build Bitcoin products and buy Bitcoin for their clients. Um, If you've re-denominated, it doesn't matter who buys it when. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's how do you price everything else? Well, I price it in Bitcoin. So Bitcoin's at the top.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: It's all about re-denomination, Robert. It's yeah. like re-denomination is the name of the game here. And I don't think I uh, articulated that very well in Layered Money. It's difficult to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think anybody has articulated it um, perfectly yet. That re-denomination is a, is a whole mental shift and that's how everything happens. I think Bitcoiners fundamentally understand that. That's why they stack Mm -hmm. because their unit, they've decided upon their unit. They've re-denominated. You've re-denominated. I've re-denominated. So we've already done that a hundred million people have also done that. uh, Let's say um, plus or minus, but how does a hundred million people become a few billion? And is one question. And can Bitcoin still remain at the top of the pyramid if if we never get above a billion users? And the answer is yes, because mm-hmm. um, it depends on what's the size of the settlement. Like people might never use Bitcoin as a first layer of money; they'll use government currencies as a second layer of money forever. But those that don't want it in the uh, don't want to keep it because it's it's more current than stock. They convert to Bitcoin. And that's how they're denominated. So it always rests at the at the apex of the pyramid, and that's how I see. It's actually already how I see the world, and that's that's how I wrote the wrote the book. The book ends with Bitcoin at the top, so that is the vision. But I think that it's already it's already started for those like myself, and we just have to propagate the re-denomination mentality. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I hope that people get that out of the book.
0: Yeah, this is, no, I like the, this term read denomination makes you think that, you know, money, again, what, one of the answers to what is money is it's just a claim on savings effectively, whatever capital is in the world, money is a claim on that. And so money becomes in the denominator for savings. Like we talk and speak and think in terms of money instead of, you know, number of cars or houses, for instance. so it's, it is once market actors shift towards that unit of perception or denomination that that is actually putting it in the hierarchy you're saying.
1: Yes. um, Yes. It's, it's, it's how you view it, right? It's, um it's if you think of your work like okay I have book sales right mm-hmm. now when my royalty payments started coming i thought to myself obviously they're in dollars mm-hmm. right i thought to myself i have bills to pay right so you know i can't i can't convert all of it to bitcoin but are you going to tell me that like I wrote this book and I, you know, got royalties from it. People bought it all over the world and I'm not going to convert some of that to Bitcoin. I'd be insane. I'd be insane to do that. So I've re-denominated in that my royalty payments have to be, have to convert themselves into SATs at some point, or I've done my future self an injustice because I've mentally redenominated already. What do I want the dollars for? I have bills to pay, right? right. I have things to buy, um, and I have investments, investments to make. But I also, like, f- other than investments, I also need sats mm-hmm. as security because they're my monetary reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what redenomination is, so I've done it, and I, I think you don't know that you've done it until you wake up and you realize that all you care about is is the latter, right? Mm-hmm. Not the former. Right. Uh, people that are still like, when are you gonna sell? <laughs> you can sell Bitcoin. You can still sell Bitcoin. But having re-denominated in – after re-denominating after in Bitcoin because you have things to do with dollars or you want to buy other things that you need dollars for. Yes. Like, you can sell, but you're not – I promise you, you're not selling for dollars. You're selling so you can buy something else. Hopefully, another asset. Right? Yeah. Maybe another productive asset. Maybe not. But you're not selling it for dollars. And if you are, you haven't shifted your denomination mindset appropriately enough, um, because you're just in it for the gains. It's not about gains; it's about redenomination.
0: Yeah. So whatever you need currently, you need currency to satisfy to go out and spend. That's right. But whatever wealth you're looking to preserve or put in the battery or make your stock, right? Whatever's not your flow you want to put in stock, in treasury, Bitcoin is the perfect technology for that.
1: And and it's not just Bitcoin. It's what is the asset. Bitcoin is this amazing asset. So it enters that realm. I'm not going to be, I promise you. I'm not going to be collecting art. Okay. I'm not going to go out and price a Picasso out and stuff like that. That's not where, that's not where I'm going to allocate, Mm -hmm. but I'm looking at land, Mm -hmm. right? I'm looking at ways that you can invest in assets and that's, um, you know, and then I'm pricing things in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So it's that shift in denomination is one thing, and yep. then choosing your asset is a separate process, and oftentimes people are that the, the answer is the same to both of those things. It's Bitcoin.
0: Mm-hmm. This is why Bitcoin's hard to understand too. It's yeah. it's meta, right? You, it's not just dollar gains, bro. This is years shifting. You're swapping out your lens of perception on the world. You're gonna. You're moving to a world where you no longer think in dollars. It's like a software update to the brain. Um, sounds
1: radical, well, but it's Bitcoin. Happening. The Bitcoin software is an update. Is an update to your brain. Mm-hmm. I really believe that's why I always uh, hammer home mastering Bitcoin and like understand the software, figure out what a nonce is. Um, yeah. You know. Uh, you know. Use private keys. Encrypt and decrypt yourself. Send and receive. When you, when you do that, you've upgraded your brain to like, oh, this is obviously money. Mm-hmm. So those that have never used Bitcoin or will never use it as a software are at an extreme disadvantage. Yeah. Um, because you're, you're, you're functioning without a software upgrade to your brain that allows you to um, step into a new, you know, monetary reality yeah. um, that is anchored by. Um, this computational network. And, you know, the power of that um, drives people to go all in on Bitcoin, you know, spiritually and with their careers and things like that. And so, you know, go get you your upgrade (laughs) Um, (laughs) or else you might not be able to see it.
0: Yeah. By ignoring Bitcoin, you're doing yourself a serious Darwinian disservice. I think you're just Your children will not thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Nick, this has been awesome, man. I Honestly, your book, I mean, I I can't sing its praises enough. Um, If you're listening to this, go out and get it now. It just, it it spells the whole thing out. I think you just read this one book and you'll, so much of the picture will be crystallized for you. Um, And it's written, you know, I'm a big proponent of, nice writing, like stylistic, smooth, like easy to read. And it's, I can tell you put a lot into it. It's very polished. It's very good. Um, So just wanted to say that, and you know, your efforts do not go unnoticed. So maybe you could just tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find the book and any parting thoughts you may have.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate your uh, praise of the book. And um, it makes me very happy that you enjoyed it because uh, we've been friends for a long time, so um, I'm glad, uh, you know, to know that um, it made an impact on you. Uh, you guys can find the book on Amazon. Just Google it, Layered Money. You can find it anywhere now uh, on audio. It's on Audible, um, ebook, um, And you can find me at layeredmoney.com and links to the book, to purchase the book at layeredmoney.com. You can find me on Twitter at Time Value of BTC. And, uh, you know, send me a message and let me know how you uh, like the book.
0: Awesome. All right, Nick. Thank you so much.